It was some sort of like. It was some sort of a like science, like science epic thing, and like Natalie Portman was like some sort of scientist or something. Yeah. And she's like, she's like scientist, and like the movie starts out and it's like, hey. Here's some nice shots of some like some like university, and you're like, okay, okay, and then the camera goes inside, and it was just like the most cliche, like book reporty sort of like scientisty sort of little academic scene. But like it was like I've seen this fucking written like ten billion places in ten thousand movies, and it was just. It's just the whole film immediately, I just was like, I don't even want to watch this, and I just shut it off. So that's why it's a, I call it a tentative zero, because I, at this point, like, I still feel like I should try, because I always say if you, if you don't, if you shut the movie off and don't have any inclination to watch it, like, immediately after or in the next few days, then, then that's a zero. Yeah. So that's, like, the only movie that I can think of off the top of my head where I'm like, zero. Even Avatar. Yeah, there's just no point. Yeah, even Avatar, I give a one. You're listening to Radio Cosmos, and it is now 5 p.m. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. A friend! Barry's father had been bred, like many other young sons of a genteel family, to the profession of the law. And there is no doubt he would have made an eminent figure in his profession, had he not been killed in a duel, which arose over the purchase of some horses. I'm afraid that both you and your mother will have been worried at not hearing from me during the past weeks. But my situation here has become a difficult one. This is Paris. And I'm an American who lives here. Barry's mother, after her husband's death, lived in such a way as to defy slander. When absolute proof was completed, we acted. We acted like soldiers. My name's Jerry Mulligan, and I'm an XGI. This is the end. Are you sure you want to do it? My movie! What is it? I don't know what it's called. What is it called? Kevin. Dylan. You ready? Son of a bitch. Are you trying to tell me that I can dodge bullets? The wrong side of the river! I'm Michael George. Stop it. Get some help. Tony Mona. The terrorists had the president's daughter in the old bean factory. I can't get drunk today. Too bad. You will die. Affected by deadly toxins from cancer-infested rats. This spill is despicable. Movie. 31. Billy What's-His-Name show. This is Greg Sestero, and you are listening to My Movies Better. Hello, and welcome to the 31th episode of My Movies Better. I'm Kevin. I'm Dylan. And this week, we are talking about the big old prestigious award man himself, Oscar. The golden fella. The big golden fella himself. Uh, the Academy Award, very specifically, we're not talking about the Academy Awards just in general. We're talking about the best cinematography Academy Award winners. Uh, so the films that we 
watched for this episode, uh, I picked Barry Lyndon. I picked an American in Paris. And the Facebook group, uh, facebook.com slash mymoviesbetter, get on there to vote. They picked uh, Apocalypse Now. Um, So, yeah, we are going to uh, be talking about those in a moment. But first, we got to talk about the weird movie of the week. Uh, This week, I found this movie is called Kid Cop. And it was a uh, 90s movie, so uh, I don't know. I just picked it because I found it and I thought that the trailer was funny. <laughs> it's about a kid uh, who's a cop, <laughs> sort of, <laughs> um, determined to follow in the footsteps of his late father. 11-year-old Peter is obsessed with becoming a policeman, and he's not willing to allow the fact that he's just a little boy to stand in his way. His usual cases involve petty crimes, but things go awry when he and his fellow child partner, Lisa, so he's endangering another child, just to point that out, (laughs) find themselves on the trail of two thieves after a mayor's office is robbed. And then other stuff happens, I'm sure. Um, This movie was actually a... uh Actually, here first. Why don't you uh, give me the, give me these taglines for this movie? Oh, these are some good these are ones. pretty hilarious. Uh, go ahead, make his day. Ba-na-na. But he's a little boy, yeah, and he's putting another little girl in harm. That's a problem. Yeah, definitely. That's a problem. Definitely. Um, and the other one we have is he's fighting for truth, justice, and smaller uniforms. <laughs> I'm so small. They don't make a uniform for me. This is is a kid's crazy. (laughs) This is a kid's movie, but for some reason, it's also one of those things where in the 90s, um, this is why I was thinking when I was talking to you off the air, this is why I was thinking of Surf Ninjas. this is one of those movies that is for little kids in the 90s and references a bunch of old shit for some reason, like Dragnet, Hawaii Five O, Starsky and Hutch, Cagney and Lacey, Sudden Impact, Murder, She Wrote, Law and Order, Homicide, Life on the Street, and NYPD Blue. That's crazy. Yeah. So the guess there was like trying to make jokes for their yeah, For parents. the adults that were, uh, yeah, yeah, at the movie. Makes um, sense. Also, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a remake of a uh, South Korean film, um, which I heard is, uh, it's referred to as the Korean Home Alone because it was one of the first Korean movies to have a bigger emphasis on children's roles. So Home Alone did. Right, uh, right, right. I guess around the same time. Um, Where's that, 93? Yeah, Yeah, that was 1993. I actually didn't put this, I'm pretty sure this was a remake of that. The um, the American one. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe it was just <laughs> that uh, it was titled the same because I could see them just being like, "Hey, uh, so we got this movie. It's uh, it's called like you know, some cooler original title." Yeah. And they were the producers, and they're like, uh, "How about Kid Cop?" Because <laughs> like I love yeah. it. Yeah, that's great. It was like it was like Encyclopedia Brown. It was right, like right, that right. that book series, and they're like, "Fuck that! It's Kid Cop." <laughs> Hey, who's that over there? Oh, hey, guys, it's me. It's Tom Jellowies. Oh, my God. I got a movie for you guys. It's called Silence of the Hams. Get it? It's Silence of the Lambs, but I'm in it, and I'm a big 
bad guy, so it's Hams. Isn't that great, guys? Uh, Tom, that, the movie came out in 1994, though, and we don't have a 1994 movie. Uh, first of all, Dylan, it's Dom. Uh, second of all, how about a, a movie from 1975? Hey, Tom Delewey stars in hot stuff. Okay, stop. <laughs> It's about some Miami police detectives, Ernie, Louise, Ramon, and Doug. Go away, Dom. What do you do when you've done it all? Cannonball. 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 Hey, kids. Do you like singing? Do you like dancing? Well, do I have a movie for you. This is a film that boldly states that when the chips are down and times are tough, let Sing Sing Sing, a movie about an American who goes to Paris. How novel. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know it's in the title, but hey, it's a film that they spent a shit ton of money on one dance number. And if you like dance numbers, it's a doozy. Yeah, holy shit. Yep, a film like, just like his other classics, Sing in the Rain, Anchors Away, and Take Me Out to the Ball Game, Gene Kelly does what the title says he does in the film. Did I mention he's an American? And he's in Paris. That's right, it's... This is Paris, and I'm an American who lives here. My name's Jerry Mulligan, and I'm an ex-GI. In 1945, when the Army told me to find my own job, I stayed on, and I'll tell you why. I'm a painter. All my life, that's all I've ever wanted to do. And for a painter, the mecca of the world for study, for inspiration, and for living is here on this star called Paris. Just look at it. No wonder so many artists have come here and called it home. Brother, if you can't paint in Paris, you better give up and marry the boss's daughter. I got rhythm. I got music. I got my gal who could ask for anything more. I got Daisy. I got in green pastures. An American in Paris. <laughs> is a 1951 American musical film inspired by the 1928 orchestral composition in American in Paris by George Gershwin. It stars Gene Kelly, Leslie Caron, Oscar Levant, uh, Georges Guterres, and Nina Falk. Nina Falk. Uh, the film is set in Paris, and it was directed by Vicente Minnelli. Um, and the music is heavily George Gershwin. And uh, it's kind of it's like kind of like a remix of a lot of Gershwin's uh, themes from *An American in Paris* and yep. around stuff from around that time. It's really it's really cool musically, but we'll talk about that. Yeah. So like, all the choreography was done by Gene Kelly, of course, because he's a psychopath yeah. when it comes yeah. to it, and it just shows the whole time. Um, and it's all set to, like you said, Gershwin's music. Uh, it has I Got Rhythm in it. It has I'll Build a Stairway to Paradise. Um, it has It's Wonderful. Uh, and Love is Here to Stay. And at the end is the American in Paris. Like, that's the whole thing. And it's this big ballet number. It is 17 minutes long. And yes. it's crazy. Um, I, I wonder how many... I was watching it the other day, and I wonder how many specific shots make that. Um, you know well, what I mean? When we were watching it, we started counting, and I don't, I don't remember what I came up with because I was more counting just the distance between them. Um, right, right. Because like there aren't, there aren't many. Like there's, and there's a lot of like moments where the camera does uh, a a really quick cut 
that almost doesn't feel like a cut because of like the stage like location of it all. It's kind of like if you're watching a play and then it cut to another part of the stage, you don't feel as much like that's a drastic cut, like right. the way you see in film. Yeah, it looks you know? like an instant set change. Right. Exactly. It's kind of like how you could watch a scene that is actually a bunch of match cuts, but you don't actually notice. You don't think of that as a cut in the same way as a hard cut to a different place. Right. Just because of how your mind deals with a conversa the conversa conversational nature of those scenes, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I think... Oh, no, I was just going to say it cost like half a million dollars. Yeah. To yeah. shoot that one. Scene. So I did the. Uh, it's in here somewhere. I did the math on, or the inflation rate on that, and 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 yeah, it's expensive. It you know, it multiple million dollars. I'm pretty sure I have the number in here. So we'll yeah, get at to that. The time eventually. is pretty wild. Yeah. So uh, as we said, it stars Gene Kelly as Jerry Mulligan. Mulligan. I'm an American <laughs> and I'm in Parish. Like, <laughs> love it. I love his voice, man. His voice is just a, a treat to listen to. Oh, it's um, great. I forget what this is from, but there was some joke in something. I think it might have been Frisky Dingo. They were talking about uh, about uh, uh, Tony Hopkins, Anthony Hopkins, and they were like, "Oh, I'd, the joke was like, oh, I'd uh, I'd pay or I, I'd I'd love to listen to him read the phone book," and the other person's like, "I'd pay for it or whatever." Like, <laughs> you know, it was it's he's one of those voices. You're like, that voice is just so good. I just yeah, he could be saying anything, mm -hmm. and I'm like, ooh. Yeah, I delivered that joke like really poorly, but uh, it's all good. <laughs> and uh, another favorite of mine, Leslie Karen, who is so cute. I have I have such a crush on her in this film, uh, and she plays Lisa Bouvier. Hmm, Lisa Bouvier. That name's familiar, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe the Simpsons. Lisa oh. Simpson. Marge's uh, maiden name is Bouvier. Oh shit! I don't know if there's a connection, but there might be. Wow. Yeah, I thought that That'd was interesting. That'd be interesting. Yeah. I never even thought about that. And I also like to point out Oscar Levant, who plays Adam Cook. He is uh, our jazz pianist. Oh, he's um, so funny he's in it too. Fucking legitimately, dude. He's fucking hilarious. His one, his every line is a joke at someone else's expense yeah. or his own, but it's. So funny. That one scene in the beginning where he keeps asking for the coffee and the waiter just keeps mm -hmm. walking right yep, by him. Yep. It's so good. Just his responses to everything, the way he like is sort of like patronizingly sarcastic mm -hmm. to both of their love, uh, you know, their love interest stories that he's just like, I'm just trying to play my piano yeah, and get this grant. In the middle whatever. of it, every scene, too. <laughs> yeah. I feel like they always put him directly in the middle of the table. Right. Or like, would, like a metaphor for he's it. like a practice. He's like sitting there practicing his fucking songs or whatever. And then, you know, here comes Gene Kelly and he's just like, la la da 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 He's like tab dancing dude, around his apartment. Yeah, dude, I'm like, I'm like trying to work here, you know, and he's like, no, we're going to sing. And then they just have like an extended dance routine oh singing song number. And he's like sighing the whole time. <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty great. Though. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. So uh, there's also some like random people who were in the movie and like would have been known at the time so this is like a cameo hayden rourke who played uh dr bellows on i dream of genie he is milo's friend in the like dance jazz club scene who's like dancing with her with, oh yeah um i guess we should point out milo too uh played by where is she uh nina falk uh milo roberts who's like his benefactor who i guess like is sort of like in, into him yeah. or something i don't know we'll get to that in a bit um 
And Noel Neal, uh, who had played Lois Lane in two Columbia Pictures 1940s Superman serials and also had played on TV in The Adventures of Superman, had a small role as that American art student who he wouldn't sell the picture to. Oh, yeah. no so way. She, she would have been like, you would have probably known her at the time from like watching TV and shit. Right. And uh, I love how like movies like this, they were so big. You, they had like these little TV star cameos of people who were trying to break into the Hollywood world. Yep. Um, and, oh, and there's actually one more, too. Uh, Madge Blake, who played uh, one of my favorite characters, Bruce Wayne's aunt, Harriet Cooper, on TV series Batman, the uh, Adam West yeah. Batman. One Hell of the, yeah. his the old aunt Harriet. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. I didn't realize that was her, but then when I thought about it, I was like, oh, my God, that was her. Like I re- She's the woman in the perfume shop. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, so... Taglines, and uh, you have to read these in an old-timey voice, it says right here. Weird. <laughs> wonder who wrote that. <laughs> some, some dude. Uh, what a joy. It's MGM's Technicolor Musical. Technicolor Musical. <laughs> That's great. G- give, give it to me again, but different. What a joy. It's MGM's Technicolor Musical. <laughs> so this, this, this time in a, a different old-timey voice. Yeah, different old-timey. <laughs> Are there different old-timey voices? I guess. No, it's the same one. <laughs> What a joy to see MGM's Technicolor musical. Yeah, it's basically the same thing. It's the same thing, yeah. but... Adventures of an ex-GI in the city of romance. Art students... Bu- <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> tough. Art students ball biggest, most daring ever film. Screen's most spectacular musical. Yeah, there's no way, other way to read them. Why did they point out the art students ball in that last yeah, that's one? That's weird. It's just a weird thing. That that whole that whole line just stuck out to me so much. He's like, "Oh art yeah, we go for a party with ball. the art students." You yeah, know? <laughs> art like, students ball biggest. Nice. We're gonna get you guys gonna be getting some marijuana. Yeah. You know? Oh my god. Yeah. Th- I love they're throwing <laughs> people like off the balcony in the. Yeah, it was a little like, wild. Yeah, like this party is insane. A little wild. This is, yeah. th- these are definitely art students. <laughs> Had a hunch. Give me that. Give me that um, budget. Yeah. So the budget at the time was two point seven million, which now is like. 25 million mm-hmm. so i guess that would mean that like if you said there was a, about a, or i said it was about a half a million dollars for that dance scene i feel like that'd probably be like like three million five million dollars now something, something like that i think yeah. that's what it is or maybe th- it's between like three, three and five, five that's I think. crazy i'm pretty sure it's in here um, hope. but it made seven million dollars at the time which would be 69 yeah. nice million dollars yeah today. a lot of fucking that's money. a ton of money yeah um and it's 95 percent fresh on rotten tomatoes with a 79 percent audience score so yep. pretty good across the board yeah the critics uh for the most part give it pretty glowing reviews it's a it's a classic film you know it's one best everything almost everything but best picture or maybe it also won best picture yeah i don't think i don't i know it won I, like i have it six other further ones. but it won a bunch of awards it, it was the big movie that swept the awards that yeah. year in 1951 um and so but i did find uh i actually did find one from our buddy where is he uh-oh i could have sworn i found one from james oh maybe that was a different film might have been um yeah looks like it was um but yeah, at the time, it was also highly, highly regarded film, and in fact, more, way more highly regarded than a film that is now considered his best film, Singing in the Rain. Singing okay. The, yeah, Singing in the Rain did really poorly at the box office and with critics. Um, Damn. But yeah, it just had more yeah, staying power. Yeah, it solidified power. itself mm. more, yeah. I feel like I get why this film is so, like, is not timeless. As great as it is, 
Singing in the Rain has this timeless quality from the era where it doesn't feel like it takes place anywhere. Um, but in like a certain decade, you know, yeah. and that's what makes those movies last. When a movie feels too much like it's particularly in one particular year, then I feel like it just doesn't have the same staying power. It totally feels yeah. like that in American in Paris, too. Yeah. You're like, this definitely. is Paris in like the 40s. So cool. this, uh, I guess this film, we should say, came out on November 9th, 1951. Um, and some other films that were uh, came out this time were the Alistair Sim version of A Christmas Carol, one of the most famous. Uh, Le Poison, starring Michael Simon, and Death is a Number, a British horror film directed by Richard Henryson. And some other films that none of those really I, I know other than the, the Christmas Carol. But some other films that came out around this time, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, O Streetcar Named Desire, starring Mar Martin Brando, Streetcar Named Desire, um, Strangers on a Train, uh, Hitchcock, Showboat, and Across the Wide Missouri. All right, not bad. Yeah. Uh, music around that time. That's, all right, so yeah, this, this, we talked about it off air. It's the oldest episode. I yeah, mean, oldest movie that you've ever oldest covered. Oldest movie you've covered, yeah. Um, so I feel like it's about to get weird. Uh, Cold Cold Heart by Tony Bennett. Hey. Yeah. Okay, that makes <laughs> Good sense. Good old Tony Bennett. Um, and in the UK, um, nothing because the chart didn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> 1952. So. Yeah. So you gotta wait uh, a we, year. We they did their first ever British number one hit was Here in My Heart by Al Martino. Okay. Yeah. Not a bad start, <laughs> I guess. Um. But this year was the year of Nat King Cole. That's important to know. Yeah. With both uh, Too Young and Unforgettable topping the charts, and number one and two, respectively. Yeah, for That's like the cool. end of the year charts, yeah. Um, and in video games, that's right, motherfucker. It's 1951, and it's video games. Bet you thought I didn't have anything, <laughs> huh? Well, guess what? The Ferranti designs the amazingly named Nimrod computer to demonstrate the game uh, of Nim during the Festival of Britain. And early, Nim was an early computer custom-built to play a computer game, one of the first games developed in the early history of video games. Um, it was a 12 by 9 by 5 foot computer designed by John Bennett and built by engineer Raymond Stuart Williams. And uh, it allowed exhibition attendees to play a game of NIM against artificial opponents. And I'm not actually entirely sure. I thought I had grabbed it. Uh, NIM is a mathematical strategy game in which two players take turns removing objects from distinct heaps or piles. So it's... One of those games you could like play uh, with a piece of paper in school or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, video games way That's back crazy. then. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a bunch of shit. So, uh, <laughs> Dylan, why, uh, why did you pick this film out of all the? Geez, there's like been fucking how many? Like fifty something? How many Academy? Been more than there's been that. More it's than gotta that. be, yeah. yeah. <laughs> how many fucking Academy Awards has there been? The fifty? Yeah, uh, the seventies was like the fifties. So we have like. A lot. Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> I'm going to do it. Yeah. A lot, you know. Yeah, I picked this one because musicals are kind of quirky and cool, man. Um, I don't know. It's it's infectious. Like you said, it's not timeless. Um, Gene Kelly just has, like, a charm pretty yep. much for any of his movies. Um, I just felt it would be something a little different, too, you know? This is a nice, yeah. nice change of pace a little bit. 
Yeah, it's def- I definitely want to cover more movies from this era and before because I feel like we don't do a lot of that. And yeah, and we talked about air a little bit that movies of this era kind of get like pushed aside and forgotten in a lot of genres. So it's nice to yeah, like there'll be like one or two from each one. It's like people will talk, you know, a lot about the singing in the rain, but not about Anchors Away, which is another one I'd I would love to cover or yep. this film. Um, because they're not the like s- the, what has been now considered the gold standard or whatever of those films, right? And also, like this is only within less than ten years from the time this came out, the movie musical like died off, and so pretty much did Gene Kelly's career. Yeah, like the uh, Hollywood musical yeah, became uncool very exactly. fast, and that's it's kind of sad story. Um, he is a fucking charming gentleman in this film. His body. You watch everybody in this film, and they're all great, um, especially, uh, uh, you know, Lise Bouvier. I forget what the actress's name is. But um, his body movement is, like, a thing to behold, even when he's just walking. You know what I mean? Yeah, just the it's, com- his the whole command. life is, like, choreographed. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's like he's dancing through life while everybody else is doing other stuff. And yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It's I love I love how the film is shot, and I can totally see why this one. I had not seen any of the other films that are on this upcoming thing, this list I'm about to now scroll down to, because um, I want to talk a little bit about the other films that came out in the time and compare them. But obviously, like we haven't seen all these films, so that's going to be a little bit tougher. Yeah, for um, sure. But so, in the course of what this film did win, we have a whole bunch of Academy Awards. And yes, it did win Best Picture. Okay, yep. It also won for Best Art and Set Decoration, uh, Cinematography, obviously, Best Costume Design, Best Music, Scoring of a Musical Picture, and Best Writing, Story, and Screenplay. So... All pretty big awards to be yeah. winning. That's that's a sweep right there. Now, some of the stuff it was nominated against was, as I mentioned before, A Streetcar Named Desire... Uh, and for Best Picture, which I would argue is probably a better film and more of a Best Picture-worthy film, and it, it makes sense that it lost to this spectacle of yeah. a film, you know? Yeah, it's a bit baity. Yeah, yeah. Um, best Music on the River Riviera, which is an amazing <laughs> Alfred Newman soundtrack, which I, I contend, even though, again, the music is great. And I read this quote, as I started to go through this about how maybe this film wasn't the best representation of 1951. And I kind of argue with that, not in the sense that they're necessarily wrong. It's not the best representation now by nowadays standards, but it is by 1951 standards, which is why it won all those awards. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that goes into more about like, what some of the underlying themes in the movie are because what's interesting about this one is that it's like a crafted musical so like these songs were written for this musical but they're based on you know gershwin's music so they have there's some sort of there's some sort of message in the movie it's not like when they record you know fucking once upon a mattress or some shit and and make a movie out of it and there's already a musical like this was made this is a the truest sense the movie musical it only existed at that time as this musical, you know? Right. Um, what What do you think, like, some of the, the themes are in this film? So I think a lot of the themes are really dated, too. Like, a lot of the uh, finding love in an unfamiliar place 
is a super dated theme. The whole courtship of Gene Kelly and and Lisa is like a little bit. Uh, I mean, it's a little. It's definitely not 2019 standards. Dude, no, of you, it's courtship. shit. It's shitty. Yeah, at a lot and, of and it's like it. he's not not in the sense that he's being like too physically aggressive but like by nowadays a scene like that he would be the skeevy guy that the audience goes no don't go with him go with the guy who doesn't care about you and who's acting all disaffected you know yeah. so i think yeah by that at that time it was like oh no he's the good guy of course you should go with him he's he's good he's mr mr funny guy right you know? so so if you haven't seen this movie uh just to blast through like the love interest aspect of it. Yeah, Gene Kelly. Just do the plot. Yeah, me, so boom. Gene plot. Kelly is this painter in Paris. He is selling art on the side of the street, and this woman comes to buy it. Brings him out to lunch later. Um, he sees uh, this other girl, Lise Bouvier, and he's just like staring at her <laughs> for a while, and then ends up like at a club where they're dancing. And he pulls, he, like, just walks up to her and he's like, "Hey, come over here and dance with me." And just yeah. pulls her up Let's and brings go. her to yeah. the dance floor. It's like, "Oh, now, honey, we're gonna dance." And she's like, "Uh, what? Like, get me the fuck out of here." Ends up like just following her. Shows up at her work, asks her out, and she's like, "Okay, cool." So they go out. Well, he like he like. Well, I will say he like he's he like jokes around a little yeah, bit. Does yeah, a little it, yeah, physical it, it, comedy. This you is know? a blast. This is a blast. Yeah, blast no, right yeah. now. <laughs> Watch <laughs> the movie. I had to hinder you there. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's like he does throw on his little Gene Kelly charm and like wins her over. So they start seeing each other, and clearly she wants it to be in secret. Um, you don't like. You don't know that she's getting married to his best friend. Well, he yeah. doesn't know. And then it turns into Casablanca. Yeah. yeah. And, then, like, <laughs> and then he says he wants to marry her. And then she says, no, I can't. I'm getting married. And he's like, man, well, what yeah. the hell? I want you to marry me. Exactly. And, and yeah. then it ends like it's that, like the studio changed the ending of Casablanca. And he has a hallucination about dancing with her before she just runs back and yeah, the end of the picture. Right. Yeah, yeah. She runs away to get married with this guy. But yeah, and essentially. Then just and then he drops her off, so she can go <laughs> hang out with Gene Kelly. Yeah, like because he, he drops her good, off, he kisses good her goodbye, yeah. and then she runs up to Gene Kelly. Yeah, he's a good guy, you know. He's like, like you know, that Gene guy is actually probably better for you than me, honey. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, he would have. He would have said that. Like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. The French. I'm very French. <laughs> Womb. Oh yeah, Henri. <laughs> I feel like a return to the womb. Um, so not that friend. But yeah, it's basically just your classic. Yeah, two guys in love with the same girl and they're friends. Storyline that's been in so many movies. Um, I think there's also there's also some themes of like obviously him living abroad and in the time it being you know a post World War II film and he's a American and he's a ex GI. Um, that all really like ties into some of the themes about it. The way that he talks about that character we mentioned earlier, who's trying to buy his painting. Uh, so she basically, again, if you haven't seen it, she she's taught, wants to buy one of his paintings on the street, and he kind of gives her the cold shoulder and basically acts like they're not for sale and tells her to go away. She can't have any. And then Milo comes up, and this is when they first meet, and she's like, "Oh, why? Why are you? You know, are you gonna bite my head off too?" And he's like, "Oh no, it's just those people." these new people who are like, you know, here for a couple months and they leave. Like, so there's a little bit about like American, um, like imperialism, like post-war imperialism, where it was like installing ourselves abroad because yeah, into other places yeah. as we could. And I, what I always want to know is why, like more so than just the movies, happy go lucky 
take on like, oh, Jerry just loves Paris so much, you know, like look a little deeper and it's like, well, he's an ex-GI and he was in Europe and like, did he see some shit or was he one of those guys who showed up real late and like didn't actually fight in the war really? Like, and it's, it's an interesting sort of backstory for a character to have. But again, from 2019 eyes like in 1951 it was just like yeah he's an xgi yeah that's a good character you know yeah they're like oh that's a good label people won't want (laughs) right right you know so i think this movie has that thing where there's unintended themes because there's parts of it that when you want to like break it down and it's and you don't take it as a musical like it would be one of those dumber movies you know because of how it treats reality but the fact that it's a musical, you have to give it the musical pass and be like, well, yeah, in reality doesn't exist in musicals. Everyone, yeah, it's not a real yeah. thing. Though the songs, I do like how the songs feel natural because it's a bunch of musicians and like the Strauss song and that other one we referenced earlier are both like just somebody's already playing piano. Yeah, and they don't feel singing. like they're forcing songs on you that come out of nowhere yeah, and it, they're all fitting with the plot and everyone's kind of super happy-go-lucky when they start so it all just flows really comfortably right and it just so happens there's a fucking orchestra coming in in the background yeah hey, like, hey cool while, yeah nice you know? <laughs> beautiful it's like a mariachi <laughs> band but it's just a full orchestra <laughs> that just walks around paris in the 40s so the films this was actually up against uh i've only seen one of these films um it was up against david and Bathsheba. I've never Shiva. seen that. Never seen that. Um, it was also up against Quo Vadis, which was a that. like a Rome, like a Roman epic that they oh, spent. Oh, okay. They spent tongue. I read a little bit about it. They spent lots of money, and it didn't. It did w- like well with critics, but it didn't really do well with audiences. Um, right. Showboat, which is a film I saw, which is okay, and When Worlds Collide. So I can't I really heard of that one. can't really say about those ones, but I will say that uh, Strangers on a Train, The Day the Earth Stood Still, uh, Kurosawa's The Idiot, The Thing from Another World, aka the original The Thing movie, yep. all were some uh, movies that probably should have or could have been nominated. And it goes back to this thing that the Oscars don't like horror and sci-fi and and uh b pictures and and like dirty flicks and stuff they're all about like what's hollywood to the most hollywood extreme yeah the most polished yeah so sometimes they get it right like in the case of another film where actually i think in the case of all these three films tonight they got it right in the sense that i understand completely why the cinematography of this movie would be awarded it's great but the fact that like strangers on a train has great cinematography it should have been at least nominated you know right and the films that are nominated this is the only one out of this whole list other than streetcar named desire which is even really memorable by today's audiences so it's kind of funny to me to look back and see that like what's awarded and nominated and yeah i think it just goes to show that like the academy's decisions hasn't really changed over time either like when yeah. you see certain things that are awarded in the past like couple decades, you feel the same way where a lot of them you're like, well, there's a lot of other movies that you're just not looking at. Yeah. So what was some of your favorite cinematography? Um, so I feel like a lot of it kind of sunk up with, I feel like a lot of my favorite cinematography in it had to do with such good choreography Yep. at the same time. Like that one scene in the beginning when Gene's walking around his apartment and the camera's like following him around 
and like it's super like tracked cam just following him and he's putting up all the stuff yeah like puts up his bed and the table and everything and it just all is like this one flowing motion across this whole room. I yeah. thought that was really great looking. I like the ones actually kind of right even before that where the camera is coming up through the windows and and they, they repeat it too with both the both him and uh, Oscar Levant. It's like the camera comes up and it's like, hey, not that guy. And then it goes yeah, up. Yeah, it like self-recognizes yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And then with his little zoom and, and dolly move, it like goes into the window. And he's like, yeah. hey, that's me. I like that one. I also really like the three scenes where he imagines Lisa and the, the color. Like one's, I think, pink. One's like turquoise. One's yellow. There might even be another one. And it's like... No, she's more like this. No, she's more like this. That was really, really well done. Yeah, that was and, super cool. And it kind of brought that sort of like, like I like if you're gonna make a, a musical, in in a movie, you have to also give a shout out to stuff from musicals, and that kind of was like a shout out to being able to do that scene on stage with like some lighting, and you know, just the actress doing different dances and stuff. Yeah, like. I like I really enjoy stuff like that. Obviously, the ending, which we'll get to in a, in a sec here, is a big example of this too. Um, and their like love dance scene, that whole area, the one on the river. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say that I think one of my favorite scenes too is the first time they go down to the river when she's sitting at the table and she doesn't want to go there because the guy mm -hmm. who knows her husband is right there. Yep. So she bounces out and they go, oh, let's like go down. He's like, oh, let's take a walk down by the river. And the camera does this sort of like backwards pan as they go down the stairs and then it just like set changes yep. to this like dark moonlit river from yeah. this. It's just such a gorgeous scene change. And it's a beautiful set. I mean, overall the movie has amazing sets like most films with a high budget from this time too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's all studio sets, but they're they're gorgeous. And it kind of, honestly, it kind of feels like the way that they painted 101 Dalmatians, like the buildings in 101 Dalmatians. Yeah, you know? when they're, yeah, the streets of Paris. Yeah, yeah, it's very, like, it feels like that. And, uh, but I also really think that the way that that particular scene is is shot is so important. And a lot of the ways that most of the dance and song numbers are shot are very, very well done. There's not a whole bunch of cutting. It's a lot of just like letting the performers do their thing, which is again, what you want to do in this. So like it just, for me, it gets high marks and all of those things. Yeah, you can definitely tell that the cast had a super heavy foot on what was actually happening. I feel like right. most of the dancers didn't seem forced or anything. They're just like all flawless on their feet. Exactly. So the ending of the film, as we kind of already explained, uh, Jerry in, has essentially what I would call a daydream um, that is a, as you said earlier, a ballet of American in Paris. And it's a like remix suite of like some of the best themes of American in Paris. But pretty much it's like the whole song because that song is like about 20 minutes long so yeah and it's, it's yeah. 17 so it's so like, uh it's amazing it's really really beautiful um obviously the dancing is superb pretty much across the board uh especially once like it's just you know um the, our two main dancers who are the best in the in the movie that right. that is really really good work uh there's also some really cool camera work in it but Story-wise, 
how do you feel about the ending with it being, as we kind of explained before, just like... It seemed like it was a real big like curtain call ending. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. like, oh, all right, and the ballet's over, and yeah. he gets the girl, and we're done. Like, <laughs> it's a, I always just think in my head, it's a hell of a time. Like, yeah, it's, it's like, like everybody, yeah. And then the lights go off, everybody yeah. goes nuts. Yeah, yeah. they're in love, right? Yeah. Or whatever, yeah. Exactly. Cool. I whatever. felt like it was just like a, a quick wrap up because they give it like that Hollywood ending, you know? It's just weird that, like, there's no explanation and you don't really. I mean, I was talking about it with Olivia and she was, like, kind of pointed out that when you see them driving, uh, Lisa and her, you know, George, whatever his name is, the her boyfriend guy, her now ex-boyfriend, I guess. Yeah. It's like there's definitely, like, there's looks on both their faces that, you know, could be interpreted in a couple different ways. Yeah, she's, like, staring out the window, yeah. like, longingly. And know? it's like, so was she just, like... I'm in love with him, Jerry, and I'm in love with the Jerry. And did that he was like, oh, okay. Yeah, oh, we drive like, back. Oh, I guess we'll drop you off. Then. I smoke cigarettes much. I'm French, <laughs> you know, whatever. And yeah, just that like, like uh, pissed me off the first time I saw it too. Where it's like, it's like, okay, he just turns around, drops her off, kisses her goodbye, and then she runs up the stairs. Yeah, it felt like it was like Kelly. it felt like it was missing one more like touching song that led led into like a finale. Yeah, no. or even like a reprise of something like at the yeah. end would have been a nice and like concluder. It would have made more sense if like that happened right. Uh, honestly, I think it would have been better if that happened, and then it was like they did the ballet, and right. it was more of like a symbolic piece or something. You yeah, know? and then do the ballet like hard curtain at yeah. the end of it. Yeah, that would. It's just like it was like nah. Jerry Jerry was like at this party with the art students, and he like dropped some acid, and he's just like oh shit. Dude, <laughs> how about that uh that scene where Adam was like daydreaming and he was like conducting the orchestra just yep, yep. full of himself. Yeah. It was like him and every different yep. thing. And like the audience I think was supposed to be him yeah, too. Yeah, there were audience yeah. that were him that were just cheering himself mm -hmm, on. Mm -hmm. That was pretty I love wild. That. that was really good. But also like kind of just it just happens like it's just again there's a lot it's very much this was very much a variety show type movie. Yeah. There's just a lot going on. But uh I I loved that and I mean that Oscar Levant is a piano player. Yeah. Um, he played that. Right. He and, played uh, he all was those like, parts. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. He was essentially playing himself in the movie. He's right. a comedian and and piano player and singer. So like, um, not not his forte singing. Obviously, like like our main guys. Because uh, okay, so we should also talk about. I mean, we talked a lot about the music, but like, what what are your favorite songs from it? Um, the I forget the name of it. The one that he's singing with the kids. Oh, oh he's making um, the kids sing. Um, oh like, my god, fuck. Uh, yeah, I got rhythm. Yep. Yep. that's a good one. Um, it's so catchy and yeah. so infectious. I got. You know? I love the the kids yelling yeah. like off and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the whole routine of it is cool because it's like him just putting around the neighborhood. Definitely, it's, definitely. it's a really cool musical number. So, uh, what would you well, actually? Yeah, I think we're gonna save that for the end. Did we do? Or are yeah, we we'll score. We'll it score. Now? Oh okay. yeah, we can score. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll score it now. All right. Yeah. What is your score? <laughs> Uh, I'll give it like a 3.5. Okay. So like above average. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, it's, I think it's really good. Uh, I think it's something I definitely want people to watch. I'm going to, I'm going to bump you up there. I'm going to give it a four. Actually. Nice. Yeah. Hell yeah. I think it's, uh, I think Gene Kelly's performance is enough to make it a little bit more than just above average. It's a good movie, but not like seeing the rain is a five, but this one's like a, not, yeah. You know. 
Yeah, that's so. what I feel too. <laughs> All right, so uh, with that, we shall toss ourselves. Well, actually, we're just gonna fly a little bit over uh, the the channels and over uh -huh. England, and we're gonna uh -huh. land in the uh, the green fields of Ireland. Oh boy! Yes, for a story of a man named Redmond Barry. Barry Lyndon, a film by Stanley Kubrick, starring Ryan O'Neill and Marissa Berenson, has won the Best Picture and Best Director Award presented by the National Board of Review. Richard Schickel, in a Time Magazine seven-page cover story, called the film ravishing, overwhelming, an uncompromised artistic vision, and said, director Stanley Kubrick asserts a claim to greatness that time alone can, and probably will, confirm. Good morning, my lord. Good morning. Is Mr. Barry Lyndon here? Yes, my lord, he's inside. Thank you. Mr. Redmond Barry. The last occasion on which we met, you wantonly caused me injury and dishonor in such a manner and to such an extent as to which no gentleman can willingly suffer without demanding satisfaction, however much time intervenes. I have now come to claim that satisfaction. So what's your favorite gangster movie, Dylan? Goodfellas. Yeah, yeah, Goodfellas. Godfather Part Two, maybe. I like that one also. Public Enemy. Yeah. I also like that one. Yeah, those are all great, but my favorite is Barry Lyndon. Oh, what? Yeah, it's a, a gangster movie. Mm-hmm. A film about the true dangers of being Irish in Europe, an anti-existentialist piece that presents itself as an existentialist piece, a story about man's true place in the world and how you can never truly escape the fatalism of Stanley Kubrick's amazingly lengthy, exceedingly beautiful, and strongly engrossing picture, or the five billion takes he made the actors go through, which left Ryan O'Neill a shell of himself. And yes, like all the Scarfaces, Corleones, and Henry Hills that came before and after this film, Barry, too, cannot change the nature of his own surroundings and upbringing and station. He, like you or I, is chained to fate. Or at least, I think that's what Kubrick is saying in this film. And if you don't believe me that this is a gangster story... I got a quote here. Why don't you read this quote? <laughs> Uh, quote is, it feels like the greatest gangster story ever told. A quote from uh, just some guy that you might know, Martin Scorsese. Yes. Talking about Barry Lyndon. Exactly. So um, I didn't have find the audio of it to corroborate, but I found that on something. So I was like, oh, cool. Interesting. Yeah. So what movie is it? That's right. It's. Gentlemen, cock your pistols. Barry's father had been bred like many other young sons of a genteel family, to the profession of the law. And there is no doubt he would have made an eminent figure in his profession, had he not been killed in a duel, which arose over the purchase of some horses. 
Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon is a 1975 period drama film by Stan, uh, directed by Stanley Kubrick and based on the 1944-18-1844 novel The Luck of Barry Lyndon by William Makepeace Thackeray. It stars Ryan O'Neill, Marissa Berenson, Patrick McGee, Leonard Rossiter, and Hardy Krueger. And the film recounts the early exploits and later unraveling and tragic downfall of a fictional 18th century Irish rogue and opportunist who marries a rich widow to climb the social ladder and assume her late husband's aristocratic position. Yep. It's dun, dun. pretty friggin' crazy. Um, the film's cinematography is, that's our theme this week, it's insane. Uh, it's yes. groundbreaking. It's described that way by so many people. Um, it's got a lot of notable long double shots, and they have that backwards pan out that he does. Oh, yes. all, And it's gorgeous. Like, Wes Anderson does that stuff all the time, and his, like, clear influences from Kubrick's mm-hmm. cinematography. Um, and those scenes, there's scenes that are shot entirely in candlelight, um, and there's settings based on William Hogarth paintings. Yes. Uh, the exteriors were filmed on location in Ireland, England, and Germany, with the interiors shot mostly in London. Um, the production was troubled because there were no pro- uh, there were problems related to logistics, weather, and even politics. So uh, Kubrick feared that he might be an IRA hostage target. Because they literally threatened, someone threatened him. Really? So yeah, he got a threat to leave the country before tw- within 24 hours, and he did. He oh, left shit. like eight hours later. He was like, fuck that. Yeah. Imagine getting that letter. Oh, yep. man. Everybody told him it was a hoax. And he was like, fuck that. I'm not sticking around to see. Dude, so. that's not something worth no. figuring out no. if it's a hoax. So, yeah, th- it kind of this kind of presented it like it wasn't. They, you know, that was a real thing. He really was yeah. threatened. So Jeez. regardless of whether or not it was a hoax. Oh and yeah, God. him and uh, Kubrick, I mean, and Ryan O'Neill did not get along. Um and kind of in the future, uh, his performance w- had a perceived lack of depth with audiences that uh, kind of, I think, tarnished the movie. A lot of people, when he was cast, even were like, he was a, not a, Kub- a Kubrick type actor. Um, and I definitely think he stands out a little bit. But in a weird way, I kind of love the character that he's playing because I think it rounds out something I just mentioned before about this being uh, the everyman's story. Like, one person's story is... It, one man's story is the same as every man's story is essentially, I think, the the major theme of this film is. Yeah. So to have this sort of really everyman-type guy, even though he's a rogue and a rascal and stuff, like, you don't need this over-the-top, charismatic actor. He's more of a brute, and I kind of like that. It's It's interesting. You know? Yeah, he's definitely dialed back pretty much the whole movie, and no matter how much he grows or changes places in his life as mm-hmm. years go on, he still retains this like reserved right. guy attitude. Right. So uh, it also won four Oscars, all in production categories uh, in 1975. Academy Awards, including Best Cinematography. Uh, hey, obviously, whoa. yes. What a, what a crazy thing. Um, and we'll get to those in a second, what those yeah. other ones were. Yeah, we got a few taglines, though. Um, at long last, Redmond Barry became a gentleman, and that was his tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> um, after reaching the top, where can you go except down? <laughs> Whoa. Uh, great was his rise, 
and much greater his fall. Yeah, yeah. So they're all pretty much about like hubris. Yeah, they kind of sound like they're like B lines that were for the narrator that they like cut out. Yeah, it's a little bit like kind of, especially the first one feels like. Yeah, at the long narrator. last, Redmond Barry became a gentleman. <laughs> exactly, and that was his tragedy. Uh, the budget was twelve million dollars at that point, which mm-hmm. translates to fifty-six million now, and it made twenty point two million in the box office. So not a huge pull, but that's still good. That's that's ninety-three million dollars. Yeah, by I don't standards. know. I guess I'm just putting high stakes on that's that's like, to pull it. That's like money. almost as much as fucking Endgame. That's uh, uh, coming close to what Endgame made. I mean, I know Endgame made more than that, but what I'm saying, you know what I mean? Then $93 million is big. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. True. You know, and... Yeah, uh, but, like, the difference in that was... So it's basically made, if you, like, cost out the budget. <laughs> yeah, know? true, true. But still, I mean, yes, I, th- this is... We're going to come back to this, too, in the last movie tonight. Um, This is one of those movies where they spent a lot more money than the studio wanted them to. Yeah, in the end. and that's pretty clear throughout <laughs> yeah, the movie. yeah. Um, critics also really liked it, and so does the audience. It's uh, Critics say 93% fresh, and it's got a 92% audience score. So, yeah, one of the few that we've covered where the it, you have a very consistent one point off, you know, within margin yeah. of error between critics and fans. Yeah, that definitely doesn't happen very often. However, the film was not a commercial success for Warner Brothers, or at least not the commercial success Warner Brothers have been hoping for. Um, and there was a mixed reaction which saw this film greeted on its release with dutiful admiration, but not love. Critics railed against the perceived coldness of Kubrick's style, the film's self-conscious artistry and slow pace. Audiences, on the whole, rather agreed. And uh, Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars out of four. Um, and I liked what he said about it. He said, it is almost aggressive in its cool detachment. And I just feel like that's a... Yeah, that's a great way. Yeah, and I think it's it's another in big intention that Kubrick's trying to do. I mean, this movie, there's a, um, I believe it's a YouTube channel. And I think it's called Every Frame a Painting or Every Shot a Painting. Sorry, you guys, but they're really good. And I want, they, they, they uh, f- uh, cover, you know, like cinematography um, mainly. And this is, I believe, where they got that name from, because this is what I always think when I watch this movie. And every time, like, just count every time when you're watching it, you are like, yep, that's a painting. That's a gorgeous fucking painting. Like, if you just still frame that, we're like cut to cut. It's yeah. just like, gore- and, and it's these set up shots. So with many like, big, beautiful, mm-hmm. wide landscapes. Yep. Like like when uh, one of my favorites is when Barry's riding right before he meets Captain Feeney. He's riding down the road there. That cut and, and just the, the little like in bar or whatever on the side with the two of them sitting at the table and some people across the road. There's like some animals and stuff like it yeah. just looks like a painting from that time, yep. you know, yep. and there's so many like that. The, another one is when he's walking down an, another one like that where he's like walking down another road with the, the other captain, uh, the British, you know, soldier. And it's just the zoom is just perfect, and you just have this big wide space, and it's everything's framed. It's just perfectly, you know, yeah. perspective and everything. It's just done the way. And so it, I think that when it comes to cinematography, I'm gonna make I would make a case that this is one of the greatest like master classes in it. Um, it also has what they call the a it has an f stop in the film which basically uh best way to put it is like when you are cranking the camera down um 
an f-stop is when you you know the camera is going forward or backward and then it stops from what i could gather this is what was happening and uh so an f-stop is where you're stopping you know what i mean it's yep. it's a, a number a numerical value this has the lowest f-stop in history so that is I think it's when Barry, it's near the end of the film and Barry's like standing on like a ledge and the camera like zooms out over a river. Oh, yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. It's really far, super yeah. far back. It's either that one or one of the ones in the park when he like first confronts Leonard Rossiter, you know, the, in, in like pisses him off. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it has had also a critical reevaluation. And as we mentioned before, uh, Director Martin Scorsese is a big fan, and he actually names it his favorite Kubrick film, as do I. Um, and it is in the Criterion Collection. For you movie yeah. nerds. So uh, it was released December 18th, 1975, I think, because I read that in a couple different places, and then I read some other dates, and then it's on the Numbers website. It's in a totally different place. Weird. Uh, at the beginning of 1975. So I'm not quite sure. So Holy I just moly. went with what was happening around this date, even though it wasn't listed on that site. Fair. Um, so some films that were released around this time. The Adventure of the Wilderness Family. The Hindenburg. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Nice. Yeah, which is going to come back in a sec. And The Other Side of the Mountain. Um, the music at the time were a couple of jams <laughs> um, in the U.S. It was That's the Way, Uh-Huh, Uh-Huh, I Like It by Casey and the Sunshine Band. I got a quick cut right in here because I was just thinking about In Kill Bill, Volume 2, when Sam Jackson is talking about uh, the bands he was in. He's like, I was a drifter. I was, and he's naming yeah. like, I was a, I wish one of them was like, it was like, I was with the gang. I was with the Sunshine Band. <laughs> like, <it> just, <laughs> anyway, sorry. No, that makes total sense. <laughs> Samuel as a member of the Sunshine Band. I was a Band. Spice Girl. <laughs> <laughs> I was with TLC. <laughs> Um, in the UK, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen was a popular yes. one. And then also in Ireland, because that's important to this movie, yeah. it was also Queen. It was also Queen, They were yeah. kicking ass Bohemian. and taking names at that point. Yeah, this was the summer of Bohemian Rhapsody, yep. or the winter, I guess, because it was December. Holy moly. Um, we also had some other music stuff going on, including Gen John Denver's holiday special, Rocky Mountain Christmas. Oh, wholesome. Aired, yeah. The Faces on this day, the day it was released, the official breakup of The Faces, uh, Rod oh. Stewart and Ronnie Woods Band. Yeah. Hate and to see it. Uh, in December 20, on December 24th, the first issue of Punk Magazine was released. And nice. uh, the cover was a drawing of Lou Reed. Oh, man. Wow. I wonder how that looks. I bet yeah. it's probably awesome. Probably badass. Yeah, because Lou Reed was badass. Punk rock, man. Yeah, punk man. <laughs> So, uh, in video games, uh, in the fall, Magnavox discontinues the original Odyssey video game console. Um, and this is kind of interesting. Uh, one of the very first role-playing games uh, was released right around this time. It's called Moria. Um, and it was a game where it was kind of like a survival game. Your character required food and water. Uh, it allowed dual wielding. You had... Um, 
whole, it's just a whole bunch of interest, interesting stuff going on, and it's funny to me to see this stuff looking way back in 1975. Like yeah, that's crazy. Going on, and there was another, a couple other uh, important games, including Western Gun, which was the first video game that depicted human to human combat. Um, Whoa! Yeah, <laughs> and D and D, which was uh, the first video game to include a boss. No and, shit. And arguably the first computer role-playing game. Um, and it says the game was released in 1974, but it's unclear exactly when it became playable. And yes, it was Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. So back here, we come to the awards. Um, so that year, uh, Barry Lyndon was also nominated uh, for Best Picture, along with uh, Best Scoring. Uh, best cinematography, obviously, best costume design, and best art direction. Um, however, it lost Best Picture that year to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, the other films nominated. This is a much better list. Yeah, here. way better co like competition. Yes. In this one. So those two: uh, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, and one of my favorite films of all time, Nashville. And in fact, I could have said that about pretty much all of those films. They're all really good. Maybe this this might be the strongest best picture I've ever seen, like lineup. Damn, I've ever really? Seen. Wow, yeah. interesting. That'd be an, I gotta dig into that. Well, like Cuckoo's Nest is is a classic film with amazing performances. So is Barry Lyndon. Yeah, so is Dog Day I, Afternoon. Yeah. So is Jaws. So yeah, is Nashville. Nashville yeah. Like true. Fuck. And you could go on. Got me there, bud. Um, so I actually think uh, Cuckoo's Nest deserves it because of the the stronger lead performance. Uh, and strongest out of all of these, the and and Jack Nicholson really like shines in that movie. So I understand yeah. why this one won. I believe he also won Best Actor. I'm pretty sure that. Yeah, I think that. he did. Um, so, uh, so for the best scoring, uh, the other films it was up against was a film called Funny Lady, and a little film called Tommy, scored by Pete Townsend. <laughs> the Who's Tommy? Yeah. Um, I actually kind of think Tommy got robbed, man. Yeah, I could. Uh, you can make the argument that like this Jaws won, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. Oh, yes. Jaws. Jaws won this. Yes. Jaws won this award. I again, I think that's the strength off of one musical performance. Yeah. Uh, right. The Jaws theme, perhaps. But I think the honestly, the score to Tommy as a rock opera is a pretty damn good. Like I, I feel, I feel like it, it's just again indicative of the Oscars going for something that's like a little bit more old, like classic Hollywood. Yeah, you know, definitely. Um, yeah, make a rock opera win best score. Yeah, They'd fucking lose their they minds. They wouldn't do that shit. So uh, it won for Barry Lyndon. I mean, for best costume design, beating out the funny lady again, the magic flute, the man who would be king, and the four musketeers. It also won for best art direction, beating out. The Hindenburg, The Man Who Would Be King, Shampoo, and The Sunshine Boys. And that brings us to cinematography. So uh, I've never seen the other three films, and we have Funny Lady and The Hindenburg again, so we're just going to jump right to Barry Lyndon versus One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I think, again, pretty solid choice for them to pick this. Yeah, uh, definitely. I think it's a total fair pick that One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest won Best Picture. And this one, best yeah. cinematography. Yeah, I think that's total fair trade-off. It makes sense. Yeah, um, I think that you, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is the most all-around out of all of those films we mentioned earlier. Um, I know there's a lot of people who are going to be like, "Nah, Jaws should have won," or whatever, you know. But I really think that Cuckoo's Nest probably is the strongest film of that, you know, that or of the best pictures. Yeah, and yeah. that's that's what 
that's what it's really about i think it, when it comes to you know picking which movie you know i could say this one deserves best picture but like ryan o'neill's performance doesn't yeah it doesn't, you know, it doesn't deserve it, there, it. You know? yeah and i can see the praise of why jaws would want to be one as this big american classic totally. but i just think that one flew over the cuckoo nest has a way stronger story to it totally so as with almost every uh, Kubrick film, this is another showcase for a major innovation in uh, technique. So in this film, they had some really fucking awesome cameras, uh, and they had some. They had three super fast 50 millimeter lenses, the Carl Zeiss Planar 50 millimeter, which were developed for use by NASA in the fucking Apollo moon landings. That's where that conspiracy Holy theory comes fuck. from. Which Kubrick had discovered. These super fast lenses with their huge aperture, uh, and as I said, the film features the lowest f-stop in film history, and a fixed focal length were problematic to mount, extensively modified into three versions, and uh, gave Kubrick the ability to gain a wider angle of view. And it got these just, as we've said before, insane shots that just are so beautiful. So they're almost breathtaking. Yeah, they're they're, so they're picaresque in yeah. the sense of picture esque. Like they look like uh, just any of the, like a classic famous painting. And yeah, pretty much the whole movie you could pause at any given point, and it would be yeah, it's gorgeous. An old painting. Um, and they they also used uh, they use these cameras also to do the candlelight shooting because. If you are trying to shoot with pretty much any other lens, you would get this like fluttering from uh, the, the candlelight. Yeah. yeah. So these were they had you know they allowed this they had this like special modified rotating camera shutter, um, so they could shoot those scenes. That's crazy. Uh, yeah, and but so like he wanted the whole thing to be shot in nat natural lighting, and a lot of people always say that that film was. It's not. It is made to look that way. So a great example is my personal favorite shot in the movie, kind of jump forward, um, is when Lord Bullington comes at the end and he comes into that uh, bar and and it's that green wall with him, you know uh, Barry in the chair. Just passed out on yeah. the chair, yeah. And um, that way they they got that lighting and same thing with the scene when he beats up Bullington. Actually, they had uh, the stuff over the glass. And then they lit it from outside with lighting. They used like lights, but they didn't put the lights inside. Oh, and, really? Yeah. So not only did it allow them to get this sort of faux natural lighting look, it also allowed them to shoot inside all these areas where they wouldn't have been able to. They didn't do any damage to these beautiful houses and buildings they were shooting in because they weren't bringing the lighting rigs inside and moving shit around right, or, right. or nailing lighting up into the wall and shit like that. Like they wouldn't have been allowed to shoot at the particular buildings they were shooting at. They would have been like, no, you can't fucking nail yeah, something into the wall. Just, yeah, yeah. You can't mount a um, fucking rack of lights. There. Exactly. Stanley. Hey, true believers. It's Stanley. So several of these interior scenes were filmed in the, Powers Courthouse, an 18th century mansion in County Wicklow, uh, Republic of Ireland. And uh, this house was actually destroyed in an accidental fire several months after filming. So this film serves as a record of the lost interiors, particularly the saloon, which we just mentioned earlier, yep. uh, which was used for more than one scene. 
And I think it's funny because County Wicklow is where Finn Balor is from. Oh, no uh, way. Yeah, the wrestler, uh, Fergal Devitt. So, Fuck yeah. Um, this film is very interesting to me. Uh, it's my pick. And yes, I picked it, it because I don't just think it's a beautiful film. I also think it's uh, the strong. I actually think it's the strongest film uh, of the three tonight that we're covering. Um, and it's mainly because of what I think this film says and how how ironic and comedic this film is, uh, which is something a lot of people, I think, don't bring up about it. I actually find this film hilarious. It is funny to me. I, it's borderline dark comedy. Um, and the narrator is a big part of that. Definitely. It's got this, like, anti, right. like, Parks and... It's, uh, not, not Parks and like, Arrested Development-esque, yeah, like, yeah, parts of narration. It's a little bit... It's a little bit like, like that. cynical about what's actually mm-hmm. happening on mm-hmm. the screen. Um, so I also find this film to be, I would describe it as a film that is about an existentialist, Barry Lyndon, who is, lives in a fatalist world. And so it is an anti-existentialist movie. So basically an existentialist, to describe it quickly, I guess it would be, uh, the the cheapest way to describe it would be you know he's a person who believes he can change his fate he can change his station in life whatever he's Scarface he is fucking Henry Hill in Goodfellas yep. he thinks he can live the high life like the aristocrats and that's why I believe this is a gangster picture um, Barry is a crass young violent man he solves all of his problems with violence. Uh, who tricks and ch- cheats his way into high society and is eventually, because of his boorish ways, uh, expelled. He's, he's you know revealed for the fake that he is. And it's funny watching this now and thinking about how many times the narrator straight up tells you that fate has different ideas for Barry Lyndon and that you should already know it's not going to end up being good. And the f- yeah, true. He does address that all the fucking yeah. time. The film straight up tells you a whole bunch of shit. Like, not only does part two already set up right from its title card that this is about the tragedies that befell Barry Lyndon, so you know something yeah. bad's gonna happen. Right before his son fucking dies, the narrator straight up tells you his son is going to die by saying, essentially, Barry had his faults, but no man could say of him that he was not a good and tender father. He loved his son with a blind partiality. He denied him nothing. It is impossible to convey what high hopes he had for the boy and how he indulged in a thousand fond anticipations as to his future success and figure in the world. But fate had determined that he should leave none of his race behind him and that he should finish his life poor, lonely, and childless. Papa? Yes, Brian? So essentially, yeah, he's saying that, you know, Barry... Barry thought his son was going to do it, but that is not what's about to happen. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's like, Jesus it's, it's, Christ. Yeah, it's like deadly foreshadowing. Yeah. So. It's a laser right out there for right, you. You know right. what's coming. 
So I really like that. I also, another uh, aspect of this film I really love is how um, everything in it is so genteel and like polite. Like the Captain Feeney robbery scene is oh, so yeah. polite. Like, he tries to take his boots and yeah. he's like, you know, I'll, I'll let it go this one time. Mm -hmm. And then think about the scene where Barry and the other Englishmen are marching straight into French gunfire. And think about what the narrator's saying there and how like, it's like, nope, you're just a pawn. And it's like he should already know that he can't get out of that. And he yeah. should look at, you know, the Chevalier de Barbare or whatever his name is. He should be like, that dude is stuck in the same place I'm going to be. One day I'm going to have one leg and fucking or maybe, you know, he literally becomes that character as the film goes on. Right. You know, because then it describes him at the very end as he he went to America or the colonies and had some, you know, went back to his gambling ways and didn't have the same success. And yep. it's like he's the same character now. He's turned into that. He's living another person's life. That's, a, the as I said before, the biggest theme about this. Barry's life is no different from any other man's life. And fate fatalism is controlling everything you know yeah and i can totally we talked about it the other day but the connection to goodfellas in the character development and everything is so real and it's mm -hmm. just it's, it's a huge tragic flaw that's like slowly getting built up i honestly feel like this is a huge inspiration on goodfellas goodfellas just adds that like super slick editing to it all but goodfellas is a hugely ironic film too about yeah know, it seems almost like a modernization to an right, extent well, it kind of it kind of expects you to ride along with Henry Hill, and if you don't if you don't jibe with him as a person, then like you're gonna see him for the villain that he is. Yeah. You know? Because, and I think that's a little bit kind of what's going on here too. Because anytime you're watching a film, you immediately think that the person that the film is centered on is supposed to be your hero, and that's not every story. You know, right, not, not every not story all, yeah. is the main character, the hero, or even a good person. You know. Um, so it's, it's a little bit weird because you, you like feel inclined to cheer him on when like he wants to fuck his cousin or whatever, yeah, you know, you're like, like Ooh, and she's, <laughs> and she's like quite obviously like leading him on completely and messing with him and he just deals with it with violence, you know? Yeah. One of my favorite little touches is just how, uh, like cowardly, um, that, uh, Leonard Rossiter's character, the um, the the I can't remember his name now. The captain who's marrying his cousin. Oh um, yeah, yeah. So not only like like especially when you watch the scenes like and you think about them later. So when you're watching the duel between them, uh, and you don't know what's going on, you think that Barry is gonna kill this guy and that this dude's just like scared of getting shot and you immediately are like oh that's a little bit weird that like this guy who's like the leader of men is so afraid of guns like because he's never yeah. actually had to really fight he right. just sends people to die then when you find out later that it was toe packed into the gun and that he didn't even get he wasn't even gonna get seriously hurt and he was afraid of that. It makes him even more of a coward. Yeah, like, he's afraid of like faking mm -hmm. it. And again, that's that idea is brought up again. Right after that, you watch the guy, the military guy you do like, who has taken Barry under his wing, fucking die for no reason because that guy sent him out them out to battle for no fucking reason. Like, and I just that's another theme I think is this idea of like the aristocrat, the aristocrat 
versus, you know, the plebeian and how at the end of this movie, Barry Lyndon, who, when you think about it, isn't even the name of the main character. Yeah, Barry Lyndon's fake. Yeah, exactly. You know? it's yeah, a, that was like the total solidifying point of it. Mm-hmm. That's the, the the pivot right, of his character. Right, right, And when he leaves, the film doesn't end. The film goes on, and you see years in the future, the aristocrats still sending him his, his pittance of money. Yeah. Which, to me, is a love because it means he's still alive, which right, is just exactly, a great little touch, yeah. you know? And and it makes me want to see like the adventures of Barry Lyndon in America. Oh but my god! It's it's interesting because it's like no, he isn't really like this film isn't about just about Redmond Barry. It's about a very specific, you know, time and place, and how that time and place isn't very different from the time he was making the film. And uh, I I don't know I I I really think it's it's his best work. It's his what he could do at it's like most interesting and most epic and it's the biggest movie he ever did. And there's a huge reason for that because the reason he made this movie is because he wanted to make a Napoleon movie. And then another director made the movie Waterloo, which did not do well at the box office. So the studio and a bunch of the investors were like, eh, and the investors pulled their funding. So he had to come up with a new movie to make. And so he decided to do this based on this Thackeray book and just used the, because mainly he could use a lot of the research he had been doing of the period. Yeah. He was already prepared. Exactly. So, and I do think that's an interesting, like weird counterpoint is the fact that like, that's the other side, like the Napoleon was, is not in the right, movie, right, but yeah. like it is the, the yeah, Napoleon like what's happening era. at yeah. that time. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, to I think believe about. I believe it's like 1840s is when this takes place, uh, or at least the the bulk of the middle of it. You know, when Barry actually is a young man is like the 1840s, like around the time the story starts or whatever, um, through the 1860s I think or something like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, so uh, what was your favorite shot in the movie? Um, or cinematography. They- Dude, so I think we already talked about both of them. That one that it just pans across the river, like Barry's on the ledge looking, and yep. the camera pulls back, and it just becomes this like ever expanding landscape is so fucking jaw dropping. And then, um, actually, no, probably not the one that uh, where he's passed out in the chair, but another table one that's like the dimly lit when they're having dinner. And when he's talking to the to Potsdorf, the Prussian, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, really uh, dark lit room. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's just this gorgeous. And they're like, they're all sitting at the dinner table, but the dinner table is off centered. It's kind of like pushed mm-hmm. to the back a little yep. bit, so the the camera's showing more of the room. It's that was another yeah. like really grabbing one, yeah. like you said, picturesque. Just someone could paint that. Yeah, I love uh, I love the the scene I mentioned earlier, but I also really like the Lord Bullingdon. Um, that whole like entrance way shot when he like comes into the door of the inn, that's another oh, beautifully yep. painted uh, shot. And um, the this the cinematography for less of what we've been kind of gushing over because you could gush over the the big wide shots all day in this. They're, literally, I could just say like all of them. Yeah, they're all they're my all favorite. So good. But there's some other great like different cinematography and some not so great, which I'll get to in one sec. But um, 
the scene where Bullingdon like calls him out in front of everybody at like his mom's fucking concert, <laughs> whatever the fuck yeah. it was, uh, just some rich people thing they were doing. Uh, that particular cinematography when Barry goes after him is amazing. Yeah, that's really raw. good. And it calls out my other favorite Kubrick, Doctor Strangelove, when uh, the Marines are attacking the base near the end of the film. And like Kubrick and some of his other uh, cameramen, they got handheld cameras and like got in there. And he was really known for doing that in his films when he would do, you know, physical stuff. So that leads me straight into one of the parts I don't like in the movie cinematography wise is the boxing fight scene. I don't yeah. think it's well done. No, you know, it's I pretty think, cheesy. Yeah, it, it, it's like an attempt that just doesn't quite work. And all the sound effects in that are so bad. So too. bad. I honestly that was like the one part of the movie where I was like, none of this is right. Yeah. There's something that's not right about it. I kind of wish he had just like held on the wide shot of them like all around them in the middle, and you just saw them like trading punches. Yeah, that and, would be cool. Yeah. And then maybe it just cut to Barry like totally kicking his ass, and you get a couple like close-up shots. But yeah, they, it just—it's a really, really long fight scene of this one guy just getting punched in the face. Like yeah, the same and, way. It's yeah. no like unique punches yeah. or anything. And I get it sets up Barry as like a to like he is a fighter. Like this guy's bigger than him. I, it looks like he's gonna whip his ass. And no, Barry is like a boxer. He like knows how to fight people. Right. And that uh, obviously it comes back around. He's a he's pugilist. He is not upper class so like when he is beating the crap out of his stepson in front of everyone all these like foppish guys start jumping across to try to stop him yeah, and it takes like 15 out. dudes yeah, to, to pull just him off. even stop yeah. him yeah it's he's like a stone beast. cold yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah the glass I'm shatters a, I'm, I'm a goddamn dublin rattlesnake <laughs> give yeah, me a couple like, of guinness wisers yeah i was gonna say yeah. this comes out chugging guinnesses <laughs> um God another damn. scene another scene <laughs> i really loved was um I forget which army he's exactly in at this point because it's during like when he's transitioning really quick. But the general is going down the line, meeting a ton of the soldiers, and it's like the soldiers are on the left, and then the captain or general is mm -hmm. on the right. It's just like slowly going down the line, saying hi to everybody, and then he meets Barry. Oh, and Barry was decorated. That was, uh, that was King George. Okay, yeah, 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 it was yeah when King George came in. So and he was telling King George about. Something that Barry did that he yeah, was he had, for. He had gotten a, uh, he, he gathered a group of troops to send to fight the rebels yep. in the colonies. Yeah, and they were <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, what the fuck? Yeah, they're the, like, what would, they, what would the he Americans. be doing? Um, yeah, rebels colonies. Yep. Boom, send it, done. Yep. Um, and then he like says like, oh, that was awesome, whatever. And then just keeps going down yeah. the line. And then the, and I think the, the next really guy's cool. like, hey, hey, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like the next like five people, he's like, hello, hi, Good. Hi, yeah. hi, hi. But yeah. that like tracking shot down the whole line, I thought was really mm -hmm. nice. Yep. Yeah, there's uh, another one sort of similar to that. Um, I mean, there's a couple that are like that where he does in a lot of his films. But I, I also really like how overall it doesn't feel like there's anything other than the boxing scene that is like it's not like that. It's it's crazy. It's crazy or it's you know attempting to do lots of like interesting out of control movement with the camera no it's very yeah, it's much very dialed back yeah it's very much using the camera in a classic way with the amazing technology that the cameras have it's like using the strengths of the cameras and the lenses to the you know and and not just i don't know not getting f too fancy with it 
and, and I think that that's what really creates just the aura that the, the picture has. And I don't know. I'm going to, again, I'm going to, I'm going to put this one at five. I'm going to put this in the can. Yeah. I'm yeah. throwing a five on this yeah. one for sure. This movie's awesome. Yeah. It's it, long, but it's awesome. I, I, yeah. I think it needs to be seen. That's, you know, again, just to reiterate that that's what that means. When I say it's in the canon. like it, you have to see this movie uh, Yeah. out of, all the films that we've covered, I don't think any of them have the cinematography level of this one. At least, just at least, just from like a, uh, and and honestly, it might just be a technical thing. You know, it's just like if you have the stuff and you can make use of it, then you make a better film. But I don't know. I really dropping do, some I, serious yeah, heat right I do there. Think it's beautiful. I wonder what everyone else thinks about uh, that. I mean. right. So, uh, I don't know. I think that's pretty much all I got to say about Barry Lyndon. Yeah, fantastic yeah. movie. I'm happy you picked it. Uh, so we're going to take uh, another quick break, and uh, we will come back for a little apocalypse next. practical military necessity. But out there with these natives, it must be a temptation to be God. Because there's a conflict in every human heart between the rational and the irrational, between good and evil. And good does not always triumph. Sometimes the dark side overcomes what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. Every man has got a breaking point. You and I have them. Walt Kurtz has reached his. This is the end, beautiful friend. Your mission is to proceed up the Nung River in a Navy this patrol boat. <clears throat> Pick up Colonel Kurtz's path at New Mung Ba. Follow it, learn what you can along the way. When you find the Colonel, infiltrate his team by <clears throat> whatever means available and terminate the Colonel's command. Terminate, Colonel. He's out there operating without any decent restraint, totally beyond the pale of any acceptable human conduct. Terminate with extreme prejudice. Can you picture what will be so limitless and free? Desperately in need of some stranger's hand in a Did he live his life again in every detail of desire, temptation, and surrender during that supreme moment of complete knowledge? He cried in a whisper at some image, at some vision. He cried out twice a cry that was no more than a breath. The horror. The horror. T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland. Are you an assassin? I'm a soldier. You're neither. You're an errand boy sent by grocery clerks to collect the bill. Oh, oh 
God. I'm in it. <laughs> in a world where the Vietnam War is still going on. We find a film so dense in a good way that it feels as thick and oppressive as the heat of Southeast Asia, a film so violent and raw that it rivals that of Aguirre, The Wrath of God, and was inspired by that film, but also ironically finds time for some comedy in all the anti-war or possibly pro-war sentiment. Oh yeah, and it's based on Conrad's Heart of Darkness and has a coked up Dennis Harper. That's right, it's... Apocalypse Now. Is a 1970. American epic war film about the Vietnam War. Directed, produced, and co-written by Francis Ford Coppola. It stars Marlon Brando, Robert Duvall, Martin Sheen, Frederick Forrest, Albert Hall, Lawrence Fishburne, and Dennis Harper. Hopper. It, Dennis Hopper. Harper. Weird. Uh, um, the screenplay <laughs> co-written by Coppola and John Milius and narration written by Michael Hare was loosely based on that novel you just mentioned a few minutes ago, Hearts of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Uh, the setting was changed from late 19th century Congo to the Vietnam War. So that's where the, I'm assuming the big difference in lies in the translation. Um, yes. So it's basically going from 19th, like late 19th century to 70s. Where everyone's smoking yeah, a bunch I of mean, stuff. Heart of it's not crazy. Heart of Darkness is about a dude who works for like a... It's like a, a corporation. They are like a shipping packages and shit like that through the jungle. It's like transportation thing or something. And this dude has like taken over a, a base of operations and and he's become like a treated like a god by the native people essentially. And uh, it ends very differently than this film. Uh, he just dies, if I remember correctly, <laughs> and fucking Willard goes on his merry way. Yeah. He's, and he's also not sent to kill him. He's just ends up there right so this film that we're talking about it follows the river journey from uh southern vietnam into cambodia um and it's this uh boat that benjamin willard who's a captain who used in the beginning of the movie so he just got like basically dragged out of his apartment for this assignment yeah. he is sent up who's on a secret mission everything's classified he's not telling anybody on the boat what they're doing but he's going to assassinate Colonel Kurtz, who is played by Marlon Brando, and he's based on uh, a character also named Kurtz from yes. that book. And uh, I forgot to mention that um, Willard is based on a character named Marlowe. Correct, yes. Um, and then a renegade army officer accused of murder, so that's who Kurtz's character is in Apocalypse Now. So he's yes. basically going to send this officer. Officer is being sent to kill this guy who has gone rogue exactly. from the army. Um, and we'll get a little bit more into who Kurtz is also based in a little bit later. Uh, Apocalypse Now was honored with the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, or the best film, basically. It's like a gold ball type. It's like a ball that you get. It's cool. It's cute. Yeah. It looks pretty. Um, we'll be covering that next week, but more on that at the end of the episode. Uh, it premiered unfinished uh, before it was finally released in uh, 1979. Uh, so it was honored with that as an unfinished film, interestingly enough. Which is crazy. It is considered one of the greatest films ever made, nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Supporting Actor for Robert Duvall. And uh, it went on to win, of course, Best Cinematography and Best Sound. So only two of eight. Um, it had ranks on a lot of polls uh, of the greatest films of all time. Of in course. Fact, yeah, Robert Rod, Robert Roger Ebert also included it in his top ten list of uh, greatest films ever in 2012. Yeah, so as of that point, I yes. wonder where he's at now. We'll revisit that list later. Yeah. 
Um, and in two, the year 2000, the film was selected for preservation by the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Which I agree with. Yeah, I definitely much. agree with that. Put that thing in the goddamn registry. Yeah, so um, if uh, you saw the poster for this movie, what would it say oh on boy, it? Oh, boy, it could have said, The Horror. The Horror. The Horror. The Horror. <laughs> The horror, man. It's Marlon Brando. It's me, <laughs> Seth King. It's Tom Deloitte playing Marlon Brando. Ah, gotcha. Get the hell out of oh, here, Dom. God. Get out of here, Tom Deloitte. Damn it. You son of a bitch. We gotta get Ban- out of here. I would banish him from my soul. <laughs> Damn, uh, I've been, <laughs> I'm sorry. I've been possessed by the spirit of Dom Delo. Yeah, we're gonna need to, we're gonna need a ghost bust yeah. you, but this, this Dom, ha- Dom Dom Louise coming you. this Halloween. <laughs> Dom Deloise. <laughs> um, so another tagline is, "This is the end," which I had to yeah. kind of yell because it's in all capitals. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> and then another one is, "To the victims go the spoils." Uh, morning smells. Some people like coffee. Some people like napalm. Oh, that was it. Yeah. yeah, and alludes to a line in the movie where <laughs> he says that. Um, and finally, it is impossible to describe what is necessary to those who do not know what horror means. You must make a friend of horror. Yes, that's a line from Marlon Brando, Colonel Kurtz. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, and also, Charlie don't surf. Yeah. <laughs> Which is my personal favorite line in the movie. Uh, that that sequence of lines right. is really great. Oh, Just fuck yeah. capped off by that classic line. Yeah, all the surfing shit mm-hmm. is so funny. Um, the budget was $31.5 million. It's a ton of money. It's $109 million today. Oh, and yeah. it fucking raked in the box office. It made $151 million, which would have been over $500 million today. Yeah. That's lifetime box office, so that also includes, includes the the 2001. Yeah. Okay, that exactly. makes sense. Um, and the critics loved it. it. Said 97% fresh, and the audience also loved it. 94% fresh. Pretty close to Barry Lyndon numbers right there. Yeah, definitely. Upon its release, Apocalypse Now received mixed reviews. Um, Ebert originally said uh, it achieves greatness not by analyzing our experience in Vietnam, but by recreating in characters and images something of that experience. Um, also, uh, Charles Champlin wrote as a noble, uh, called it as a noble use of the medium and as a tireless expression of national anguish. It towers over everything that has been attempted by an American filmmaker in a very long time. That's bold praise. Yeah, it is bold praise. It's kind of like, it's, it really, I mean, I really understand, uh, kind of why it's held in this reverence and why it's so important and stuff. I have my own feelings on whether or not that that should be the case, but just from an aesthetic uh, standpoint, yeah, the, I understand that this film, its film is gorgeous and it's a lot to take in. And as I always say, the first time I saw it, uh, it changed my life. So it's very important to me, but I also have some different feelings about it watching it now, which we'll get to in a little bit. So this was released alone in the United States on this day. But some other movies that are released around this time include the Amityville Horror, more American Graffiti, which is a sequel to American Graffiti, uh, and one of my favorites, Monty Python's The Life of Brian. Some other big summer movies were Rocky II, the second Rocky movie, the Muppet movie, James Bond Moonraker, and one of my all-time favorite top ten movies, Alien. 
Oh, hell yeah. Which was completely snubbed at this year's Oscars because the Oscars hates horror and sci-fi. Completely. What a shocker. Yeah. Um, so the music uh, in the UK was Good Times by Chick. Cheek. 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 Cheek, I think. Cheek. Haven't heard it. You um, probably have. I'll play it for you, but I bet you. Okay, yeah, I, I bet I have it. And then, um, oh, that no, that was in the U.S. And then in the U.K. was um, I Don't Like Mondays by the Boomtown Rats. I fucking love this That's song. That's crazy. It's one of my favorite songs. You know this song. I definitely do. Okay. Yeah. Do you know what this song's about? No. It's about a real person. Really? Yeah. It's about a it's woman. About Garfield? It was this woman. I think it was in Texas. No, it's not about Garfield. <laughs> sure. It should be. I yeah. like Mondays. It's about this guy named John Arbuckle. Right? <laughs> he had a cat named Garfield and a dog named Odin. <laughs> and someone he knew had a cat named Nermal. I don't Whoa! know. Who the fuck Nermal? Well, whose cat was fucking Nermal? I have no idea. Anyway. No, but really, uh, I Don't Like Mondays is a song. It was about a woman who uh, shot up in elementary school in oh. the 70s, I believe. Yeah. And when she was asked why she did it, that's what she said. I don't like Monday. Wow. Yeah. And so if you listen that to the lyrics fucked. again, you will be like, oh, yeah, that is what this song is about. She's going to shoot oh, the whole day down. I yeah. don't like that at I all. I fucking um, love that song, though. He's great. He, uh, little known fact about the guy from the Boomtown Rats. Do you know uh, he was in a film? Yeah, he played a character named Pink, Pink Floyd in The Wall. Oh, yeah. no way. <laughs> yep. Whoa. Yeah, that's the guy from the Boomtown. Rats. Okay, Boomtown. I forget his name right now. I don't know. Right. Um, My Sharona crushed that year, though. Yeah. So in August 25th, My Sharona was the number one on the billboards, which is awesome. And it was the first time in over a year that a song hit number one that is not either a disco song yeah. or a ballad. So that's when rock and roll was coming back, exactly. baby. But some of the other songs on the charts included uh, Le Freak, also by Chic, and uh, Do You Think I'm Sexy by oh Rob, Stewart. Rob, Rob, Rob Stewart. Rob Stewart, yeah. I've been fucking up names tonight. Oh, God. Rod so that's Stewart, not long yeah. after the uh, the breakup of Faces. Also, like you mentioned earlier, it's him I, going solo. I believe, I may be wrong, but I think this Reunited by Peaches and Herb is that Reunited Peaches Oh, shit. Oh, my sure. God. I don't know. That. That's a ballad for sure. <laughs> right. In Holy fuck. In video games, uh, this was the year of a bunch of new companies, including the birth of Activision, Capcom, Edoware, Infocom, Quicksilver, Strategic, and Strategic Simulations. The Hell US yeah. the US market for arcade games earns a revenue of 1.5 billion, which is equivalent to 5.18 billion in 2019. And in August, Atari releases Lunar Lander, the first arcade version of a game concept created on many computers 10 years earlier. Um, and there is a bunch of other um, 
big games released in this year, including Temple, A Temple of Afsai, one of the first graphical role-playing games, and Galaxian, Warrior, and Asteroid, which are all super famous Hell yeah. games in their own right. A bunch yes. of classics right there, you kidding yeah. me? This is like right before, I mean, this is 1979, so the 80s is about to hit big time. Yeah, now. Arcade Land is yeah. about to start becoming huge. Exactly. This token can unlock a fantasy you'll never forget. With this token, you can live a dream and be what you want to be in the game room at Connecticut Golfland. With the drop of this token, you can travel the universe, race the Grand Prix, or play for the New York Yankees. You can live out your fantasies in the game room at Connecticut Golfland. A cup of tokens can provide you with hours of fun and excitement. Live out your fantasies at Connecticut Golfland, Route 83, Vernon. So, uh, for the Academy Awards this year, Best Picture, the nominees were Norma Ray, Breaking Away, All That Jazz, Apocalypse Now, and the winner, Kramer vs. Kramer, starring Meryl Streep and uh, Dustin Hoffman. Oscar bait. Yeah, a movie about a white couple getting divorced and their child in the middle of it. Yep. Um... That film also won a few more. Um, in the other films that Apocalypse Now was uh, nominated for, Robert Duvall lost to Melvin Douglas uh, as Ben Rand in Being There, which I can see that. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that film. It's uh, very good. Yeah, and not. His, his performance is pretty amazing. So th- that, that one is a tougher one to call because Robert Duvall in this movie might be my favorite thing about this movie yeah um his performance is fantastic and is obviously i think the most memorable thing the charlie don't surf and the napalm in the morning are the two like most you know quoted lines yeah i from love the, the smell of napalm yeah. in the morning That's... and in iraq and afghanistan u.s troops apparently actually played ride of the valkyries from their tanks and helicopters so like it's his scene is the thing that lasted the impression that lasted the most I think out of this yeah film. Uh, in the case of best sound, Apocalypse Now won, beating out. Including some other films, uh, 1941, which was the Steven Spielberg uh, comedy film with Dan Aykroyd and John, Jim Belushi. I John think Belushi. I saw that. Jim Belushi. <laughs> Just kidding. John Belushi. Um, it's terrible. It was a really? critical Fuck. failure. Yeah. Uh, and for cinematography, Apocalypse Now obviously won. It beat out Kramer versus Kramer, The Black Hole, all that jazz, and again, 1941. So I ask you, is Kramer versus Kramer really a better picture than Apocalypse Now? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Um, (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) I think that's just Oscar bait. That's like Meryl Streep just wants to to give her awards at all times. Yeah, I mean, she's good. (laughs) Yeah, she is awesome. It's not a bad movie. Dustin uh, Dustin Hoffman has never excited me. The coolest thing Dustin Hoffman ever did was improv that i'm walking here line (laughs) that's great that is great so like um but anyway this is the group this is the group pick 
It was. I'm happy about it. Yeah, it made sense to me. I would have been okay with The Third Man or any, really a lot of the films that have been on here. Um, And I can't gripe uh, from a cinematography angle at all because the cinematography in this film is great. Uh, One of my particular favorite cuts in it is uh, the entrance to Kurtz's base or whatever you want to call it his temple yeah with all the the boats and the parting of the boats uh just being shot up from behind martin sheen with him like sitting on top of the canopy of the boat that's a really great shot yep um and in that same right around that same scene the the shots of uh willard and dennis hopper talking through the bars um is, is another really great like set of match cuts that i like yeah and i like the use of the environment there there's a lot of that which i think is the best part about it. it's use of environment and and stuff more so than like just the straight up beauty of barry linden or this the choreography of uh of american paris yeah like i feel that way with a lot of the helicopter ride scenes like the very first one that's just going over this beautiful orange sky and it's showing these huge like overwhelming scenes from above the helicopters flying over the jungle and then him using the beaches and the land with the helicopters yep. as this one big flow in that Kilgore scene when they like the guy gets his leg shut off and the girl runs up with a grenade and that the whole like helicopter camera kind of aspect was really yes. cool, making it almost like chase scene for yeah, a lot of it. Yeah. I'd almost call this uh I mean, I know it's kinda like, you know, epic war film would be like the best way to put it, but I also feel like this is another rare thing where it's like an it's an action film. I think it really is. Yeah, more so than, than both obviously the these other two films, but more so than most films that I think win this award traditionally. Um there is a lot of action in it and it's it's but it kind of also has this feeling of like they just happened to catch it sort of stuff there's a lot of like very improvised feeling stuff going on in it and i mean there's a great reason for that this film took like five years or something to complete it was like way over budget they you know had tons and tons of problems it's just a long long list of stuff yeah coppola Try keep trying to like just get out of it or get someone to take over, have someone direct the rest of the film, and, and eventually he finished it. So I think it started in maybe seventy five or seventy four initially, yeah. Wow. And didn't come out for that long. So it's definitely like the it's one of those films I think that is kind of like the whole the sum of its parts are what make the story so great, but. I kind of have some issues with it, like more from a story standpoint. Uh, I think this, well, I think this film is just like a series of set pieces that don't really have a coherent story other than they're all on the same theme. But like, it's not like they're, those themes are interconnected very deeply. It's all very on the surface, you know? Um, And there's a lot of, Chekhov's guns because of that I will put them so if you don't know what that is side note a Chekhov's gun is uh Anton Chekhov the playwrights and writer said if you put a gun up on your stage it has to be used all right and so it's kind of also like be turned into sort of a, a meme term meaning 
not just in involving weapons, but like there's things that that you make a big deal about or or just use as a theme that never come back around in any way. Like, for instance, the playing cards that the cavalry is throwing on all these dead bodies like there's the your i get your theme but you're not connecting that deeper with later scenes yeah you know that kind of just happens right there's a lot of that where things just happen he just takes this trip down the river and then he just kills the guy and then he just fucking leaves like it's a very it's not it's not a very strong story at least yeah you know well, like get, we talked about it a little bit earlier where at least with I don't want to say at least to make it sound like I'm knocking Apocalypse now, but with Barry Lyndon, you are sort of established what your your linear plot line is going to be, but there's a lot of twists and turns about what's happening throughout the right. film. Whereas at the beginning of Apocalypse Now, he's in his apartment, like having his like PTSD moments, and then he gets drawn out and given this dossier of the plan, and that is literally like what the actors got as a script as like okay you're gonna like go meet this guy you're gonna go get a right. boat you're gonna go up the river into cambodia you're gonna go past all the army outposts you're gonna find this guy he's all fucked up and you're gonna kill him and, and then that just happens that exactly happens right. you know and even like the conflict in between it is just sort of like things that happen and he rolls right past them yeah and know? they'd say that they're like you're gonna go through like bad spots you're gonna go through like military bases and like what happens? He goes through a couple bad spots, gets to a couple military right. bases. But know? nothing that ever, like, ups the ante. Like, so normally in a story like this, like, the villain would have some incentive to move. Actually, I'll give you a good example about something that you and I were just talking off the air. So I'm going to take a quick moment here to just say, spoiler alert, I'm not going to be talking about the ending of the film at all, but I am going to be talking about a point and about maybe, like, uh, you know, not around the halfway point of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, if you really don't want to hear about anything that happens in the movie and you haven't seen it, I would skip ahead for you know maybe like a minute or two here. But I want to be talking about uh, the the uh, TV show Lancer from that movie. So, if you've seen yep. it, uh, in that particular scene, the way that that episode is actually scripted out, all right. So Leonardo's character is the bad guy and the bad guy, the good guy comes to town and uh, he is in this, you know, informed. The bad guy knows the good guys in town. So what he does, he goes and he kidnaps the little girl of the family. What I'm pointing out is that the heavy in the picture comes into the picture before the good guy can get to him to raise the stakes. That doesn't happen. Right. And the Viet Cong don't really do that. Nobody does that. Nothing comes in to raise the stakes of the journey. So the journey is just a straight trip where he kind of just, you know, drifts through it. Yeah, it loses a couple men, right. but it's nothing that puts a, any sort of speed bump in his mission at all. And I think that's just a little, like, juvenile in, in how yeah. it's, it's storied. And it's I know, very fairy tale-y. Right. We also have talked about, we talked about off-air, too, that uh, there's, a, like, different endings that were shopped. There's, I mean, when he initially was writing the script, uh, Coppola told the screenwriter, like, put every scene you want to be in this movie in the script. So, like, it makes sense that it got so bloated. There's just, and that, that it's so much, like, 
of like little vignettes of yep. the war and stuff, you know. And some of the scenes are, are great and I think should stay in it. Like, say, the Playboy Bunny scene, I think, is really important in how it fits in and like the corporatization of the war and also the sexualization uh, in war and, and all that crap. Absolutely. But all, and like, like the, the big bullets, the phallic bullets yeah. being like a big thing there. But also there's some stuff that's like, you know, really, I think could be cut back and, and like is just these long, 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 long shots that really don't establish anything. They don't really do anything for it. Like in Barry Lyndon, you're seeing these big long shots, but they do something. They're not just an image. The image has so much more going on and the story's still going on in the image. It kind of feels like sometimes the story is secondary to everything else in this film. You yeah. Know? To like a conversation that isn't really important yeah. or a like, yeah, no, I, I could see that. I, feel like i'm so rooted in a nostalgic take on it that it's hard to dislike i don't want to say dislike yeah but it's hard to like look at scenes like that and cut them out because even if they do do nothing to the story it, you like to see like the realism that's what i was talking to you about off air is like this is the first war movie that i saw that had this real feeling to it where there are these crazy battle scenes and there's mm -hmm. this crazy like terror and horror that you see but then there's them going up the river on the boat and just like listening to music and fucking around and like shitting on each other, which doesn't do anything. Well, I th I actually kind of like that. I will say just because of how, but it, no, that's what I'm saying. But I, I couldn't get rid of it right. for anything, you know? Right. But I think that stuff also kind of establishes like how like out of control everything is. And how, like, everybody's trying to, like, still live this regular life. Like, that was one of the things that really I thought about a lot watching it this time. Especially in the scene where, uh, where fucking Chef is freaking out on the boat. Oh, losing it. Yeah, and I'm thinking about how, like, you know, he like, when he's like, I shouldn't be here. I, you know, I just want to Yeah, I just want yeah, to cook. Yeah. I just want to cook. And immediately, I just, like, felt. Like, what would I feel like in that same situation? I'd be like, I just want to podcast or play with Legos yeah. or whatever the fuck I do, you know? Yeah. I didn't want to fucking do this shit. Yeah. And well, that, yeah, it brings the reality that, to Yeah, it. there was, there's definitely some great stuff. I'm definitely not saying that. I'm just saying mainly that I think the story is, is kind of weak and that I think that that's the main reason why I would put it just below Barry Lyndon, you know, personally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I don't think it, it, it rates the extreme high praise it gets. I still think it's a great film. I still think it's five. I'm giving it a five, yeah, but me too. I definitely don't think that it's like, I don't feel the same way I did about it when I was seven, 16 or 17. And I first yeah, saw it. This is the first yeah. time I've watched it in at least five something years. Mm. And I definitely see that where I've seen a lot more movies from the time that did a bit right. more for yeah. the world or of like for the cinematic world. And I get that this is kind of like falling into what we talked about a little bit ago with Jaws, where even if there were better movies that came out around the time, like one flew over the cuckoo's nest movies like Jaws are going to be right. remembered forever. Right. Movies like apocalypse now, like that's if you Google war movies, I feel like at any point it's going to be like that. And like saving private Ryan right, right. are like the two top. Well, it's funny too, because so, we, me and Olivia watched 
three movies that day, and we watched. I literally in the same day watched Barry Lyndon, Apocalypse Now, and something else. I don't remember what it was. But it was a bad movie. That's a day. Yeah, it was like some like earlier day in the day movie we watched. Some like bad movie. Oh no, you know what? I know what it was. It actually wasn't that bad of a movie, but it was like a, a B movie. Um, actually, shout out to Richard from Bad Rad Movies Podcast because it was I Come in Peace, the movie I watched uh, for my guest spot on his show. Hell yeah. And, uh, Check out that we, podcast. Yeah, it's good. And one of, the, uh, one of the things that I said that was like a knock against it when I was just talking about it where me and Olivia were watching it was I was like, oh, I fucking hate any movie that has a, a, a fade or a wipe is immediately fucking bad to me. Oh it's a, it's like God. it has to redeem itself from there. So like that <laughs> includes Return Return of the Jedi, say, yeah, Empire like, Strikes Back, and yeah. A New Hope. They redeemed themselves, but like I hate anything that has those. And it's so funny because I said that, and then we're watching Barry Lyndon, and I'm like, see, see, no fucking <laughs> fades. There's no fades in this movie. And then we apocalypse now, and it's like every scene is Dude, a fade. Dude, there's at one point, there's like a three-minute long scene that somehow has like 20 fades in there's it. Like, and there's like there's like overlays of like sp- two you know, shots yep. over each other. Some of them are good. Some of them are kind of dumb. Yep. There's a lot of nothing that happens in this film. And I mean, like, all right, Marlon Brando showed up to shooting like 300 something pounds and was supposed to be playing like an elite soldier and also like kind of a mythic figure. So they, they had to do some clever shooting and basically shoot him in complete darkness and then get another actor to play him when you see him like in the shadow of the doorway or anytime you see him standing up, that's a different, yeah, it's a different actor who is, you know, Try, wow. supposed to like portray him and it i think it works great yeah it, it, it really tricks really you. well yeah. yeah um but so they they were like and they were like having all these problems with shooting and and like it just the, the whole thing just seemed like such a colossal mess that the fact that you get something this good out of it is like amazing like usually a film with the backstory of apocalypse now is a colossal failure. Yeah. And this one, this is the the exception that proves the rule, I guess. Right, totally. You know? Like when Masters of the Universe 2 comes out, <laughs> it's going to be a complete disaster. Mm-hmm. And I hope oh. I'm proven otherwise, but it's going to be. I think they're probably going to be stupid and do that thing where they just call it Masters of the Universe. Yeah, so but, then yep. It's like when they called Halloween 2018 Halloween, and you're like, "What the? F- Stop it!" Yeah, you're like, "Don't no, nope, don't do that, don't there's do only, that." <laughs> there's only one Halloween, and yeah. actually, I will say I liked Halloween 2018, but yeah, there's only one Halloween. Don't name your movie the same thing as another movie, right? Like, exactly. Like, if hey, they try man, and fuck over my boy Dolph. Hey, man, pissed. we're gonna we're gonna reboot Hellboy without Ron Perlman. Oh yeah, what are you gonna call the first movie? Hellboy. We're gonna call it Hellboy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you fucking pricks. Like, oh what the my fuck? God. And we buy this shit. But, yeah, um, I didn't see the new one. So, yeah, uh, me neither. So, yeah, we kind of uh, already said it, but uh, we both gave this a five. Yep, it's so. in, baby. Five. I yes, definitely think it's a must watch. Definitely, definitely. I don't have it numbered anywhere, but I think it's one of my, somewhere yeah. in my all time movies list. Favorite, one of my favorite cameos of all time with uh, Harrison Ford. Hell yeah. Yeah. I also really like the guy who's, I think, supposed to be a CIA agent in that scene who only has one line 
the terminate with extreme prejudice line. I yeah. love characters like that who have one line, but they like mean so much in the scene just as like an image, you know? Yeah. Just that one line is pretty yeah. powerful. And Harrison, that's a good call. I totally forgot to mention yep. that earlier. Yeah. Harrison Ford. And exactly. it, he hands him the cigarette as soon as he like, mm-hmm. he's told that he needs to kill the captain. Harrison oh. Ford like hands him the cigarette. Also, there's another cameo then that I just thought of. I don't think I put it on here, but uh, Charlie Sheen, is in this movie too? Oh really? Yeah, he's no in way. This, I said he was. It's just he was a kid. He was yeah, a little true. kid, so yeah. I don't know what scene it's in. It Weird. didn't. I, let me see if I had it up here, but I don't think I did. I could have sworn. Fucking like, Charlie Sheen. Yeah. That's dude. Every once in a while, while I was watching the movie again. I'm like, oh my god, he at that point in his life looked exactly like Charlie Sheen did as an <laughs> I know. adult. They are like oh. spitting images of each other. So, and and like I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. I it might have been another movie, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. But um the other funny thing about this particular movie. So, there's a couple others. There's obviously there's a cameo from Francis Ford Coppola himself. Yep. He you know, keep running, look like you're fighting. Like that's actually him. That was great. There's also uh an uncredited performance uh, by Arlie Ermey, or Ermey, Ermey, I think is how you say his name, uh, who was uh, better known as Gunnery Sergeant Hartman in uh, Full Metal Jacket. Oh, yeah, hell yeah. Drill Sergeant, yeah. He did he is just the, pass away? He did, yeah. yeah. He um, is the helicopter pilot uh, in that in this film, so oh, you barely yeah. see him. Right, yeah, but it would put the camera yep. on him over here and there. And nice. Yeah, I can't find it in here, but I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure I re- Yes, here it is. Uh, Sheen's son, Charlie, also appears in the film as an uncredited extra. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. I didn't somewhere, say Somewhere, just what. like a little kid somewhere in it. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Nice. But also, um, there's also Scott Glenn, who's one of my favorite actors. He plays the other... Uh, the like other current, the other assassin they sent before him who oh, turned yeah, and joined yeah, yep. Kurtz. Yeah. Um, who, so he was like barely. Yeah, he when was, he walks, I don't think he says anything. He just walks no. up to him holding the gun. Yeah, he just is like in a picture and then he's in it. But, ah, uh, oh shit, there was one more actor uh, who was credited actually. So the agent uh, for the Playboy Bunnies, the guy who's like brings yeah, him pulling out. Him, yeah. yeah, I'm pulling him back on the. Uh, that, was, that was played by Bill Graham. Oh, really? Yeah. Of one of like Winterland fame, Bill Graham. Who yeah. Was, uh, the promoter who worked with the Grateful Dead and other bands from the San Francisco yeah, there's area. A, yeah, there's a Bill Graham Civic Center now. Yep, it's like exactly. In his yeah, so no shit. There's a lot of stuff going on here. And actually, uh, the Playboy Playmates, uh, we should mention them too, Colleen Camp, Cynthia Wood, and Linda Beattie were all uh, Playboy Playmates. Yeah. They, they were, were real Playboy Playmates. Playmates. Yeah. That's awesome. Yep. Um, so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in this film. This definitely, I mean, also I love to mention uh, Lawrence Fishburne just because he's a great actor. And he also lied about his age in order to get cast. Uh, he was only 14. Jesus. Yeah. Really? He was big 14 I know, he was like, yeah, I was going to say, he was right? a big fella. Oh, my God. So that was pretty great. Um, and my personal favorite performance in this movie is Dennis Hopper. Okay, he is yeah. great as the unnamed photojournalist. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he was definitely probably on cocaine while making this. He was very hyped up. And he was known to be like quite quite an animal, party party animal. I'm sure he probably did some acid while they were making this, oh, too. Yeah, definitely. Are you kidding me? Um, so he was apparently based on a real guy, a uh, reporter named Sean Flynn, who disappeared in Cambodia 
um, and was most likely killed by the Khmer Rouge, uh, Pol Pot's uh, communist regime. Right, right, right. But uh, yeah, so there's a and there's just a whole bunch. I mean, you could do a really a whole episode just just on this particular film. Um, oh, absolutely. But at this point, I think it's time to wrap it up with our, our verdict here for this week. So uh, I want to pick two things this week. Uh, number one, what we think wins our Academy Award for cinematography this week, but also what we think is the best picture for this week. So uh, Okay, so if you those would, two? So yeah. what would I think would win best picture and what would win best cinematography? Yes, if it's both or if it's two different ones. Okay, I would say that I would put Apocalypse Now as the best picture winner and then Barry Lyndon as the best cinematography winner. Interesting. Interesting. My vote is uh, actually that the best cinematography goes to Barry Lyndon and the best cinematography, uh, the best picture also goes to Barry Lyndon. What a shock. Yeah, it did. <laughs> it is awesome. Yeah, I don't know. I think I'm just, that's, a, that's a nostalgic root that I got yeah. there. So let's flip a coin. I suppose, um, I don't even have a coin. You know what? Oh, but if we, but if we had, but if we're doing best cinematography, and we pick, we both picked Barry Lyndon as the best cinematography. That means you won. Oh, that means Barry Lyndon won. Yeah. All right, yeah. we could go with that. Yeah, because Barry, I mean, Barry Lyndon got the most votes. Yeah, for best <laughs> yeah. cinematography. Yeah, 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 exactly. Three out Definitely. of the four votes for Barry Lyndon. So that's what, a win right so there. So what do you think the best movie is this week? And so if we're doing it in our regular yeah. format, I would do Barry Lyndon Apocalypse Now. Gotcha. And then not either of those two. Yeah, same. <laughs> yeah. Same, yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, though. And American I, in Paris is awesome. I really love that movie, but it's tough to go against two such comparable yeah. films. You know? I, think, I think American in Paris is definitely... I don't know. That's why I rated it a little bit higher than you. Like I recommend it. Um, anything over a, a three really is a, is a generally recommended. Yeah, film. definitely. Um, it's okay at the very least. But I really think that like at the very least, if you go out and seek out the songs, um, particularly "Wonderful" and uh, and "I Got Rhythm," those yeah. two scenes are really great, and the Strauss song too. They're really great examples of what the film's all about, and if that draws you in, then you'll like the rest of it because it's it's really fun. But yeah, it's super fun. It's got gorgeous choreography mm -hmm. and it's super infectious, and, and it's got a great yeah. light color palette. I like. think what's really cool about these all three of these films is that they're all they're different in their cinematography and uh, and how they went about it. You I know? think they all rely on very yeah. different aspects of cinematography. Well, even if you just look at how meticulous. You know the Barry Lyndon and American in Paris's cinematography and choreography are compared to how like haphazard everything feels in Apocalypse Now. It's, yeah, you know, just very you have vast differences, and I don't know. I like that. I think I think that it it's a good uh, you know range. Yeah, of, it totally. Of what is. we can do. So. I think with the three movies for this week, it was a lot of versatility. Hell yeah! In something that all won the same thing. I think Definitely. that's really cool Definitely. that they all won that that specific award, mm. and they're all so different Definitely. in the same way. So uh, with that, I guess we are at the we have reached the end. Yeah. Of, so what are we yeah, doing next week? 
We are doing uh, the Palme d'Or. Oh, I don't even know. Uh, um, yeah, we're doing Palme d'Or winners. Uh, so I'm going to draw. I'm dropping. We're dropping our picks hot and live. My pick is The Third Man starring uh, one Orson Welles. And uh, it's one of my favorite films of all time in, I think, the best noir, noir film ever made. Um, so that's my pick. And I'm picking Barton Fink, nice. directed by the Coen brothers, starring John Turturro and John Goodman. Yeah, that means that I'm pretty sure I'll only have like one or two Coen's left. Coen's left. And nice. I've seen all of them. Hell yeah. 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 Barton Fink's a really fun movie. I'm excited. I love I love John Goodman and I love John Turturro. Yeah. And I love the Coen brothers. Hell yeah. Perfect. Let's They're all it. coming back. So yeah. And pretty soon, well, if you go into www.zuckerbergsbook.com, facebook.com, <laughs> slash my movies better, uh, you could vote for what the next movie will be. Uh, by this time, it might be too late, but maybe not. And guess what? Even if it is too late on this episode, even if it's years later, you can still probably go on the Yeah, you can, vote you can vote for that for one forever. Something. Yeah. You can so, vote for the next one. You exactly. You can share some funny things. Yeah, so Palm Door winners next week, this week, Barry Lyndon. Go check out all the movies. They're all great this week. Uh... And good night, good luck, and go fuck yourself. Hi and guys, thanks. Rate, subscribe, like. Bye. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> like, share, and subscribe too, please. And also go fuck yourself. I didn't mean that when I said go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah, you gotta tell them to like, rate, subscribe first true, before true. you say fuck then, yourself. Then, yeah, you gotta. Then you grab. You gotta butter them up yeah. just to <laughs> you take grab, them down. You grab the money out of their hands and run away, going, "Ha ha, sucker!" <laughs> I already got your subscriber count. <laughs> <laughs> Bye guys.